our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. We have a radio. Good morning. Um, I will not yell early this morning. I will not do uh, impersonations of Governor Henry McMaster. I will not um, proclaim I am not senile as audibly loud as I did last week because I've goofed my voice up. I mean, I don't have any idea. I'm not a voice talent by any stretch of the imagination. Rev would be a voice talent. Rev has a side business. People send him scripts and he reads it. He's a very um, uh, a, a, a strong and very clear Midwestern voice, which is kind of the the choice. I mean, it's it's tainted with Southernism a bit, but the base, the foundation of his dialect is still Midwestern. And I've read since I backed into show business that the Midwestern accent is kind of what most corporations want their voice or spokesperson. Uh, to be heard as. I don't get those same opportunities. I don't have an LLC, a freestanding independent business outside of my normal routine where people request my services <laughs> to read. I mean, you know, associated with the show, I read a lot of the ads, but that isn't because I have this um, the, the, this crystal clear Midwestern accent that seems to work better than most on the uh, on the air. But much like you, I sometimes get paid to talk. Well, I mean, I, I guess I do. Uh, I guess I do. I'm just not talking as strong yeah. as I, as I, I don't know. I asked you this morning, have you ever had that or yesterday? And you said, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, the fatigue. Yeah. Your voice I, I, gives I get out that all but, the time. In fact, I mean, the, I mean, when, when, since we started doing this show and started starting at 6 a.m., I've noticed that by, you know, mid afternoon, if I've been doing a lot of talking, uh, you know, on the air in the morning. And then if I record some scripts, I mean, my voice gets very weak. Very. I'll, I'll give an unsolicited endorsement. You ready? Fisherman's friend, honey, lemon lozenges seem to be a little better <laughs> than, uh, than the others. So sales staff, fisherman's friend, <laughs> excuse me. Yeah. Fisherman's friend, um, sugar-free and, um, honey, lemon, menthol, cough suppressant, oral antiseptic and throat lozenge. Is um is trying to help I'm me gonna out. Go, I'm gonna go in the other room morning. and find that bottle of bourbon. That's what I'll do. Well, to be the you said the bourbon was in the fridge. Yeah, and I'm like, who keeps bourbon in the fridge? No, well, I don't know. And then a I couldn't station, find the bourbon. Uh, you, if you got good bourbon, you better hide it. <laughs> I didn't say it was good. I just said it's bourbon. <laughs> well, in fact, it's, it was a honey flavor bourbon because it was here for a purpose. I'm sure. If someone's voice yeah. fatigues or, or gives them trouble, um, we would talk about college basketball since we dedicate a portion of our early morning uh, to sports, but I don't think there was any games last night. I mean, I, I, right, don't, yeah. I, I don't, I don't I recall. I didn't hear about any. I mean, I think Clemson won a game, but I don't think the Gamecocks had a game. Or if they did, they weren't told. <laughs> well, true. If they had a game last night, they weren't told. Here's the skinny. You ready? Dawn Staley's Lady Gamecocks are number one in America because they're really, really good. Lamont Paris is South Carolina men's team is ranked number 11 because they've been really, really lucky. <laughs> really? But I mean, they have. I mean, they've won about every close game they've been in. I think they lost to Clemson in a hard-fought game up at uh, Little John. Alabama blew their doors off. Auburn blew their doors off. Um, what's the other loss? Uh, there's one other loss in the Georgia Georgia uh, would be the other loss at home in Columbia. But every game is a dogfight. I mean, every game, it's a scrap. I mean, it's a three- or four- or five-point game. It's a it's a run late that they make to get them up eight or nine or ten or eleven, and they win. I've said, I've told my Gamecock friends, 
when they run upon a really well-coached and athletic team, they have trouble. Alabama and Auburn are athletic and well-coached, um, and they have trouble when they run into those sorts of teams. If they can dictate pace of play, I mean, if they can turn it into a street fight, we talk about Trump and, um, and his political ability. The Gamecocks have a skill when they're at their best into kind of slowing the game down, making it nasty and a slugfest and somewhat of a street fight. But when you run up on some of these real athletic teams like Auburn, like Alabama, I don't think Clemson's like that. I mean, Clemson's a little more like South Carolina. They like it to be rough and nasty. They like to dirty up the game, as I as I say. Um, the problem with the Gamecocks is you can't make a run of the NCAA tournament without running up on a good athletic team. I mean, odds are in the NCAA tournament, you're going to run upon a good and athletic team. And it seems to me that when that happens, they more times than not struggle. Um, and catching teams at the right time. I mean, basketball has gotten, I mean, I don't know as much about basketball, obviously, as I do football. Um, but but my observations are that the more the Gamecocks can dictate the pace of play and the more of a street fight they can make the game, a little bit like Clemson, the better chances they have to win. And when a team has superior athletes and you're not able to dictate pace of play and you're not able to turn it into a street fight, they have trouble. I mean, they, you know, they were 10 and a half point underdogs yesterday for a reason. They lost by 40. Um, yeah. How'd that work out? Now, in fairness, Auburn shot 60% from the three point. I looked this morning. I didn't watch a bit of the game. I watched in qualified. Daytona 500 qualified. I go. got my NASCAR fix last night. <laughs> so, um, so Auburn shot 60% from three point and 61% from the field. Guess what? I don't care if you're, athletic or not if you shoot 60 percent from three point and 61 percent from the field you're gonna whip a lot of people whether they're as athletic as you are or not i want to i want to tell you this story real quick the collective at south carolina is having a private fundraiser i mean you can't pass out the email they're not advertising it's private fundraiser to try and raise money for the collective, for the NIL. Clemson's doing some of this. Texas is doing some of that. I had a conversation yesterday with someone closely affiliated with the collective supporting Gamecock athletics, football, baseball, uh, basketball, women's basketball. Is, um, has three or four kids, I think, collecting a paycheck in the name, image, and likeness program. Um, but the, the conversation continued and we started talking about today, tomorrow, a year from now, two years, three, four, five years from now. We talk a lot on this show about forks in the road. And I want to get to another, a much bigger fork in the road that has to do with Ukraine and, and Russia and whatnot as the show progresses. But I think college athletics is more at a fork in the road than it imagines. And I think the fork in the road is people walking away. I mean, I really do. I believe that people are sincerely considering. You and I know people who make huge investments as a Clemson fan or a South Carolina fan that don't like the way things are. They don't like, they don't blame the kid. But I've mean, not heard anybody yet say this is all the kid's fault. I think they believe the kid's taking too much advantage of the situation. I mean, they're humans. Most human beings, when given an opportunity to take too much advantage, we do. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of who we are. Um, ain't many Mother Teresas in the world. Uh, most of us are self-preservationists to the nth degree. But but I'm hearing more and more and more about how turned off they are 
with this new model. And once again, they're not angry with the kid. I think they're more angry at the folks that let us get here. And all of a sudden, Clemson and South Carolina need to figure out a raise another $10 million a year, $15 million a year to be competitive in college football, baseball, and basketball. And they're going like, really? I'm at another $10 million? Another $10 million to be good at amateur athletics? And I just think fans, I think some fans will embrace that. And they'll say, okay, it's the free market of athletics. Let's go. Let's have at it. But I think a lot of fans that believe Garnet and Orange are making determinations about the future of their investment. In other words, I spent my entire life, as, I'll give an example, but I can't speak for others. I am not as inclined to be a super fan as I once was. I mean, I grew up a Gamecock. I'm a diehard Gamecock. I'm embarrassed to say what I've spent over the years as a Gamecock fan, how many road trips I've been on, how many season tickets I've bought, how many vacations we've planned around Gamecock athletics, um, how much it has meant to me over the years. But I've got a bad taste in my mouth. I mean, I've just got a real bad taste in my mouth about where it is. And, and I don't know how to fix that. I mean, when I watch the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, I accept that I'm watching professional athletics. I accept it's all about the money. I accept that somebody's running the franchise, spending money, saving money, borrowing money, floating money, bought, you know, got a manager, an owner. They got to go visit to see if they can sign this um, free agent. I mean, I accept all that as business. But, but amateur athletics has historically been presented to us as, you know, um, win one for the home team, you know, win one for the Gipper, um, give it the old college try. I mean, I think most of us accept it's not been that in a long time, but all of a sudden fan bases that have been so unbelievably supportive of programs. And the one thing I think Gamecocks and Tigers will agree on, I mean, I can, I can say this, I have a great deal of respect at how Clemson has supported their athletic teams over the year. You know what, Rev? I think Clemson fans, have a great deal of respect the way South Carolina fans have supported their teams over the years. We both have a lot to be proud of there. And and, and we're both uh, amongst the haves and have-nots. We're the haves. But here's the example I'm going to give you, and here's why I'm so concerned about the future of college athletics. Let's say Rev is, is the owner of a business, and Rev, Rev sells his business, and he has more money than he's ever had, and Rev buys a yacht. And Rev... You know, he's all of it down the intercoastal waterway. He goes to Boca Raton every now and then. I like the story so far. Well, all of a sudden, Rev decides, hey, man, I'm going to Monaco. I'm going to the Monaco Grand Prix. We're talking about racing. I'm going to the Monaco Grand Prix. Rev pulls up in his yacht, and he realizes he doesn't really have a yacht. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't really have a yacht. There's the Walton family's yacht. There's Elon's yacht. There's Bezos' yacht. There's the yacht they built for Steve Jobs. But he passed away, and his wife decided to sell it. And Rev kind of tells his captain, hey, turn around, let's go back. To, let's go back to Merle's Inlet. Let's go back to Charleston. I, I, I don't yike this. I mean, I don't yike this at all. Well, the point I'm getting to is Clemson and South Carolina have a yacht, but they don't have a super yacht. Texas has a super yacht. Texas A&M has a super yacht. Southern California has a super yacht. Ohio State has a super yacht. Michigan has a super yacht. Georgia has a super yacht. Florida, if they get their feces consolidated, has a super yacht. And and we're going to find ourselves unable to compete with the Walmarts of the world, the Amazons of the world, 
and I'm using that as a kind of a, a, a you know, a, a comparison to who Texas, Texas A&M. We're going to have such a significant disparity between the really haves and everybody else. And the the guy that I was talking with yesterday with the collective at um at South Carolina, but I mean, they're proud of what they've done. Clemson, I think, is proud of what they've done. But he says, dude, the worst thing you can think of is Texas or Texas A&M uh, inquiring about one of your players. Because, I mean, if you're paying him a quarter of a million dollars to play football and he's really good, I mean, they'll pay him a million. Why? Because they can. Because they can. And I'm concerned. And then this is where I'll give the, NBA, the NFL credit. Who drafts first in the NFL draft? The team with the worst, worst record. Um, there's revenue sharing. There's salary caps. They can't let the sport turn into something where only the L.A. and New York teams win. I mean, they've got the most lucrative markets. I mean, they, you know, if we didn't have revenue sharing and salary caps and some sort of organized structure that spreads the wealth, I know that sounds socialistic, and it is, to be honest with you. But you've got to create an intriguing product, and college football is not going to remain intriguing if six or seven teams have such a financial advantage over all um, the other teams. Once again, I think the Gamecocks and Tigers have a yacht, and it's a nice yacht in Charleston. But if they venture off to Monaco to the Formula One Grand Prix, somebody on one of those yachts would say, can I borrow your yacht to go to shore? I mean, that's just kind of sort of where I I think we all uh, find ourselves. 843-661-0937. I want to come back and, um, and talk about this fork in the road that we touched on yesterday. But I think, I mean, after reading a little bit last night, yesterday afternoon, um, I've got some opinions that I want to get your opinion of. In other words, I want to give you my opinion, but more importantly, I want to get your opinion of my opinion. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Okay, I need your help. Josh, you ready? This is because some of the generational things uh, we're talking about. And Rev, obviously feel free to jump in. So I'm surmising, and I'm deciding. Uh, I read a lot yesterday. I try to better understand. I read an article in the New York Times. I read an article in the Washington Post. I went there because I knew that odds were they would have a different perspective than I. I mean, if, if, the, if the elite narrative is X, they're kind of going along with the elite narrative. Not every time, but it's pretty predictable. I mean, they're normally so, – so, so what I began looking for, the questions that I have, and I want to make sure that I'm not out of line here. I mean, I, I, I can be real rambunctious at times. I can be, you ready, disobedient to the narrative. I can be disobedient to the fact if I'm hell-bent, you know, that I'm right and I'm not moving and I'm not budging and you've got a fact, but I'm going to find a counterfact. I mean, it doesn't matter. It may come from one of the craziest extreme websites in the world, but I've got one. I mean, I've got a nugget of something or other to combat whatever factoid you throw my way. There's no denying that the majority of Americans, I saw a Pew poll, I've seen a Gallup poll, and I've seen a Fox poll that the majority of Americans don't trust Ukraine. I mean, they just don't. You can ask liberals, do you trust what's, do you trust the Ukrainian government? No. Do you trust the, um, you trust expenditure funds to be sufficient? Uh, do you believe you've had answers sufficient in the, the spending of American taxpayer dollars? No. Um, no. So, so that's, I mean, there's a fairly good consensus there. It doesn't mean you're a Putin sympathizer. It doesn't mean you won't rush you to win. 
I want to go on the record. I want Ukraine to win. I just don't think they can. I just don't think they can. The Russian government will send every young Russian man to fight in that war, and they're going to win. I mean, it may be by attrition. It may be a peace treaty. It may be some agreement where Russia, you know, controls a certain part of Ukraine. Russia is not use, not going to lose that war. It's too big a nation. They have too many human beings that they're willing to sacrifice. That's the socialist. I mean, think about this, guys. I'd like to believe, now I don't know, but I'd like to believe at some point in time in American existence, we've made a decision based on the amount of human loss there's, there's, we're going to take on. I mean, there's got to be some calculus that says, wow, man, I mean, this thing could work, but it takes three more years and another 50,000 American lives. We can't do that. I mean, it's just not in our best interest. We can't, we can't send another 50,000 young American men to die. I mean, I'd like to believe that that is different from us in Russia. Putin will send every last uh, Russian man to Ukraine to die in the name of not losing that war. That's a fact. There, there's no, I don't know how you deny that. So here's the problem. The American people believe that the Ukrainian government is not to be trusted. So naturally, the American people have questions. Where's this money going? What are the objectives? I mean, what are we trying to accomplish? Do we have any idea of where we stand? How much progress we've made? Are we talking about feet? Are we talking about miles? Are we talking about rivers? Are we talking about buildings and cities? And, and when we ask those questions, we get insulted. We're a Putin sympathizer. We deny the realities of the Second World War. We don't respect what Reagan built and the dominance Reagan and the American, I, I guess, the unipolar moment in global politics, you know, down with the Soviet Union, and here America is as a unipower instead of, you know, a battle of superpowers. They owe us better than that, don't they? I mean, I'm asking, am I out of line? I don't want Russia to win. I don't trust Putin a, a half second. But I believe the Ukrainian government is corrupt. When, when I say, because I was thinking about this last night, I said yesterday, under no condition would I send money to Ukraine. I stand by that. There are conditions I think I would allow military armaments to be shipped to Ukraine. I mean, do, do, do they go to Poland and Poland ships it? I don't, I don't know how you do that logistically. I mean, you know, um, geography is not my forte. <laughs> you know, what's the song? Uh, I'm not sure I could point Iraq or Iran out on a map. I mean, I think I could, but but I don't know the best way to get fighting gear to the Ukrainian forces. I don't have any idea. Do, do we have an excess? See, McConnell says now that we must support this funding bill because we've depleted our artillery and we got to rebuild it. Well, then how irresponsible is it to send our artillery to Ukraine not knowing whether we got the money to replace it or not? I mean, that's complete dereliction of his duty. But what McConnell is convinced of, Rev, McConnell is convinced that the, the post-Second World War II mindset is so permeated, it's burned, it's branded, it's entrenched. There's no negotiating. This is the way things have to be. The biggest foreign policy blunder, and I'm going to say this every hour today, I'm convinced as a non-foreign policy expert that the biggest foreign policy blunder we made, Josh, was not at the end of the Second World War 
welcoming Russia into the Western alliance. They'll never be our best friend. We'll never jihad 100%. We'll never see the world the same way. But we didn't have to make them a mortal foe. And now they're running with the mullahs and, and Xi Jinping. And, you know, out of that comes a questioning of whether we can be as dominant on the global stage as we've historically been since the end of the Second World War. Um, I just think that our, most scholars will argue Iraq is the biggest foreign policy blunder of the last 75 years in American politics. That was a blunder. But I'm convinced now that the way we've dealt with Russia post the collapse of the, of the Soviet Union was a bigger blunder. They would have never been our best friend, but they don't have to be. We would have never been their best friend, but we don't have to be. But it was so profitable. It was so profitable to have a boogeyman. It was so mm. profitable to require our government to spend nearly a trillion dollars annually. Why? Because you never know about those Russians. See, that was going to be my question. Why do you think we didn't do What that? if you never know about those Russians? They'll get the band back together. They've got those nuclear weapons. They've not destroyed all those nuclear weapons. They're expansionist by nature. The, the point is, yes, okay, Rev, we would have never broke bread together. We would have never been best friends in some holy alliance to save the world and make humanity uh, better in the long run. But I just think there was an opportunity at the end of the collapse of the Soviet, and that's Putin's complaint. I mean, watch the Tucker Carlson podcast. Putin says that he felt they had a chance to be a little more embraced by Western Europe, by the United States of America. Bill Clinton said, we'll consider it. And then Clinton and Putin gathered again six months later at one of these, I don't know, somewhere, or Russia. May not have been Putin, may have been Gorbachev. I don't remember who it was, who the Russian leader was at the time. But Clinton basically said, no, I can't do that. Can't do that. I mean, I know what I said as an American president, year, you know, a year ago, but I went and checked with the, the powers to be, the CIA, the military-industrial complex. It may be. I mean, it may genuinely be as simple as Tucker says. It may be Trump is an anti-war president, therefore he can't get elected. I mean, it may be, you know, we try to complicate. I got all these, all these debates and all these peripheral debates and disagreements saying, you know, uh, brush fires of this, saying continuation of that and, you know, Trump's policies on immigration, his policies on corporate America, this America first agenda. I mean, it may be as simple as Tucker says. Trump is perceived to be an anti-war president, and that's too risky. We can't take the chance of, of electing someone who at every whim in considering whether or not I to go to war. So voters believe that Ukraine is corrupt. Where's the money going? What is the objective? Why can't the 17 or 18 Republicans, and I don't want a nostalgia-filled dissertation of Reagan and the Cold War. I mean, that's, that's, to me, that's lazy and reflexive. I mean, it's, it, it reflects on the past. Um, it, it's, it's nostalgic in nature. And, and I just I, I think we can do better than that. I mean, are we bound to the principles of Reagan forever? Or are we bound to the realities of the Cold War forever? I mean, is, is the Cold War going to shape our foreign policy for the balance of Josh's life? 
I, I sure mean, hope not. Well, I mean, at some point in time, you got to break that hole, Josh. And that's the fork in the road that I think we are. We're trying to break the fever that, that, that the majority of people mining Rev's age have in looking at global security and foreign policy shaped by the Cold War. Take a break. Back in a few. It's interesting. Someone who didn't vote until he turned 40 is now arguing he's sure what the biggest foreign policy blunder <laughs> in the last 50 years in American history is. He must be a fast learner. But, but you said something during the break. I'm, I'm not saying that Russia would have ever been our best friend. I, I would never insinuate that. I mean, I think there's too, I think we're too dissimilar. I mean, I think their way of life and ours, it's just very unique one of another. But they're not incompatible. I don't think we compare the Russian people to fanatical Islamists. I mean, I don't think you wake up every day believing there's a certain percentage of Americans, excuse me, um, Russians, that want Americans dead. I think you wake up every day thinking there's a certain percentage of them fanatical Islams that want me dead. I mean, it's uniquely yeah. different. But what we did, Josh and Reb, we forced Russia down another road. And I think had we not embraced, but had we left the door halfway open, and Russia could have somewhat aligned with the Western world at the end of the Soviet Union, they would not have been forced to find some other alliances. And where were the other alliances? The mullahs of the Middle mm-hmm. East and China. Xi Jinping, the China, China Communist government of, of China. Let's go to the phone. Jimmy in Marion. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning. I, I want to bring you the view from the sun looking down on America. Uh Donald Trump told us that he was the president of the United States, not the world. He he was basically telling Russia the other day, we're not going to play with you, we're not going to be in that game. And he told NATO to take care of themselves. And I'm going to draw you back to a movie called Red Dawn. Uh, in that movie, the Chinese paid for the Mexicans and the southeastern countries to attack America. So now... We've got a president that screwed us in every corner of the world, and we need to start taking care of ourselves. And and that's all I've got to say about this. Thank you. Appreciate that. A little Forrest Gump at the end. That's all i got to say about that. All i got to say about <laughs> that's that. That's a good sign out yeah. there. About as clear and concise as we could expect. And and I just, I mean, that that's kind of an, just think of that angle for a second. How many of you now go to bed believing that a certain percentage of the Russian people want you dead. How many of you go to bed every day? Nah, not not condom. I mean, nobody stews on this until something crazy happens like 9-11. But I think we've all accepted. You kind of believe that during the Cold War. I mean, that was the narrative, right? We were trained to believe that. I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that. Right. I mean, it may be it a may, higher percentage. may have been very true. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 there may be a higher percentage today of fellow Russians who wish fellow Americans dead than there are fellow Islamists who wish fellow Americans dead. I don't believe there is, but but we've never allowed a fair debate. I guess that's the, the point I'm trying to make. We've never allowed the American people with its government or concert with its government to have a fair and critical debate about Russia. I, I'll go on the record, Josh. I want Ukraine to win. I don't trust Putin as, as far as, I mean, there's no way I would ever trust a former KGB agent. Doesn't matter. I mean, there's some of these things much bigger than I am. My opinion of Putin can't be the reason that we allow Russia to become such a threat to global security by aligning itself with China. And just ask yourself this. Hypothetically, I mean, nobody knows how the world plays out, but hypothetically, 
the Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall, the Soviet Union collapses, that, that there's, there's kind of power grabs all over that part of Eastern Europe, and Russia ends up as it ends up. Russia extends, and maybe Putin's a liar. He says, ask Bill Clinton. Russia extends, uh, you know, a handout. Hey, we'd like to be considered a member of the Western world in some way, shape, or form. Don't want to be a member of NATO, not asking to be accepted as, you know, the good old red, white, and blue, but we, 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 you know, we realize that we're in a different place now. What's the odds the Western world would accept us in some way, shape, or form? And, and, and Putin said, ask Clinton. Clinton says that may be something that we could work on. Clinton goes back and, and I guess gets advice or, or a recommendation from some of his cabinet officials, Pentagon hierarchy, uh, State Department. I don't know who makes that call in the bowels of the federal government, but out of that comes a rebuke. Can't do it. Can't do it. So Russia all of a sudden is sitting there in, in a new, I mean, it's, it's a new iteration of Russia, and they've got to look for allies. And if the Western world says no, then they look somewhere else. And next thing you know, Russia is aligned with the mullahs of the Middle East and Xi Jinping, or really the communist government of, of China. So why do, do you blame Russia for that? I, I just think the world would have been a safer place had Russia been allowed in some way, shape, or form. We're not going to be dance partners. I mean, there's too much difference in the way we see the world, the way we view values and human rights. I mean, they're socialists. We, right? Let's go to the phone. Bill in Sumter, listening to WDXY. Hello, Bill. You're on. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, did you t- did you say earlier that Mitch McConnell said that we need another $90 billion from Ukraine? He said if we goals? don't get the – no, it's it's actually $60 billion for Ukraine. But he says if we don't get that additional funding for Ukraine and we don't get some of these spending bills passed, he's concerned we're not going to be able to replenish some of our artillery and ammunition. Well, then what's the purpose of the $800 billion for the budget already? Uh, you're talking about the defense budget. If not, if yeah, if not to make bullets, it's, it's about, about it's about eight it's about eight hundred eighty billion. It's closer to nine hundred billion this year. Yeah. So what's the purpose of it if it's not to make bullets? That's a good question, but nobody asked Mitch McConnell that from the <laughs> National Review yesterday. Thanks, man. Have a good day. Thank you. I mean, that, that's the I mean, that's the most obvious question. Yeah. So you're telling me we're spending eight hundred eighty billion a year in defense, that's and we're about enough. to run out of bullets? Right. Wow. Who's getting the $880 billion if we're not making bullets? Guys, trust me here, and there's no way we'll ever know the answer to this. You and I have no idea how many relatives of members of Congress work for defense contractors. Whatever you think it is, it's probably 100 times higher. Whatever number you've got in your head, relatives and friends of members of Congress working for defense contractors, and I ain't talking about wearing camouflage with a gun over their shoulder. I'm talking about vanilla lattes and Patagonia fleece. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take a break. Wendy in Florence, good morning. You're on the air. Good morning. I was calling about the Russian situation. Do you think that Russian was minding their own business when the United States invited Ukraine into NATO? Putin's always said... If you keep coming for me, I'm going to fight back. And as far as the money, where's the money going? It's going to fund socialism in the United States, communism in the United States. 
you don't think that we are under attack, if you don't think that we are over the edge and we're getting ready to lose our country, then you're blind. That's my statement. Thank you, Wendy. Appreciate that. There's There's a big debate about how extensive a conversation Ukraine had regarding NATO. I mean, there, there's a big, complicated, argumentative, disagreeable, he said, she said, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. He insinuated, no, I didn't. She took a trip. No, she didn't. I mean, there's a big, complicated geopolitical debate about how far down the road Ukraine got to attaining NATO membership. But I think, I'll look up during the break, Russia... Russia is bordered 400 miles, 600 miles of NATO membership nations. I mean, Russia shares a border. I mean, the, the Americans will tell you NATO's not an anti-Russia transatlantic or transnational organization. Putin thinks it is. Most of Eastern Europe, Russia thinks it is. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Got a couple of minutes here. No call? No call. Okay. No call. Um... I want, I want to continue down this road. I read something again last night. Um, I mean, we're talking, Tucker said, and I, and I think Tucker's, here's what I believe Tucker Carlson is up to. You ready? I think Tucker Carlson believes that the left has been, son, un, been so radically unfair in the media that he's going to return the favor. I mean, he's going to do everything he can to get under the skin of leftist America. And to some degree, conservative right, uh, the elite establishment of the. Um, but I mean, when Tucker says that Moscow's better than New York or Russia's better than America, I mean, there's no leg to stand on there. I mean, there's just not. Um, I mean, if you look at every metric, quality of life, uh, clean drinking water, alcoholism, suicide, um, every square foot of of a dwelling. I mean, there, there's a divorce rate. I mean, there's everything about Russia's bad. I mean, in all honesty, it, it's, it, it, was, it seems to be a pretty miserable, miserable place to live. But what would it have been if at the end of the Cold War, we had agreed not ever to embrace Russia, but to allow them to experience some existence and acceptance into the Western world? I mean, what would the Russian suicide rate be? What would the Russian percentage of people who or on alcohol, um, the divorce rate. I don't have any idea. I mean, to me, communism never lived in the communist country. I've read, I've studied, I've tried to understand. Um, I mean, as bad as we are, we ain't as bad as they are, is I guess where I'm headed. We suck the least. How about that? We <laughs> suck the least of some of these Yay. other places. But what would Russia had been like? Now, now you can say, well, it's all about oligarchs. It's all about, you know, the, the wealthy. Well, I mean, America's not. I mean, in all honesty, America's not. Um, I heard a debate this morning coming over about the Second Amendment, excuse me, the First Amendment, and some of the uh, overnight guys, the guys that do the show before we do, they were talking about how crazy Josh Hawley is to suggest that Citizens United needs to be overturned. And they're talking about it's just crazy. I mean, that's not a conservative principle. Limiting free speech is not a conservative principle. Philosophically, I'll agree with that. But I'll ask you this, and this is in the spirit of Russia. If Citizens United allows corporations to influence the government by making monetary contributions, at what degree is it uh, a bigger violation 
to the First Amendment than someone yelling fire in a theater. I mean, someone yelling fire in a theater is dangerous. Is the Fortune 500 of the American industrial and commerce system or order owning 70 or contributing 75 or 80 percent of all the dollars spent on American politics more or less dangerous than someone yelling fire to theater. I mean, you got this practicality of policy and you got the philosophy that underpins your belief in a certain policy. I believe in the First Amendment. I believe corporations have too much influence over government. So how do I unwind that? I mean, how do I, how do I, I mean, that, that would be a point of conflict in my own world, right? I mean, I believe in the First Amendment. I believe that corporations have too much influence on government. So practically, I got to figure out a way to limit the amount of influence corporations can have on government. That may be an infringement upon someone's First Amendment right. Because we're talking about Russia's run by the oligarchs and wealthy. Okay. Give me another difference, or give me a difference between America and Russia. 843-661-0937. Apologize for my voice. I really thought I had it fixed, thought I had it figured out, but I don't. Fisherman's friend, honey lemon lozenges might not be all they cracked up to be. <laughs> Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Good morning. Uh, good morning, guys. Good morning, guys. Um, I'm not going to say this would ever happen, but, but let's just imagine real quick. Let's imagine that we really wanted to pass Ukraine spending, or the neocons did, and all of a sudden somebody just leaks some highly classified national security emergency about Russia having a space nuclear program in order to get funding for Ukraine. I'm not saying it would ever happen, but it looks like it happened. Thank you, Ashley. Yeah, appreciate that. Timing that. was a little cute well, I mean, yesterday. But, but in, and his, historically, that works. I mean, when conventional wisdom prevails and the government has the moral authority, that leaks freaks people out. All of a sudden, the conventional wisdom is waning. The government has lost the moral authority. Half of Americans don't believe anything the government says. So it, it's, it's like, okay, of course that's the case. It's almost like McConnell and them have been so convinced. And, and I get it. I mean, they, 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 have, they have ascribed to that worldview all of their political lives. They lived in a world that included the Soviet Union, nuclear threat, and a Cold War. I mean, it's hard that you don't just, once again, I used it, flip a switch. I mean, there, there's an evolution. It's a generational process that has to take place. So I think in, in 20 years ago, if we're not, I mean, if, if somebody in Washington is stalling foreign policy funding and they leak that, the American people freak out and say, oh, we can't take that chance. I'm going to call my senator, call my congressman. Got to get that bill out of there. Got to get those Ukrainians armed. Now, because once again, conventional wisdom wanes, government doesn't have the moral authority, and the American people say, of course that's what they do when they can't get their way. I mean, that's where we are. I mean, that, it's not a moment, literally, but that's the political moment figuratively we're living in right now. That's, I mean, I talked about the proverbial fork in the road. 
do, do, am, am I am I am I somewhat? See, here's the the problem with Russia, Reb, and you and I were talking during the break about what if we what if we had lived the last thirty years of our lives in a world that Russia was more accepted. Yeah, I, didn't, I thought one of the mo- more interesting parts of the Putin Tucker interview. Uh, was where he talked about the, making those overtures to President Clinton that he wanted to, you know, get into some role that was more aligned, or at least, at least it wasn't so adversarial to the West. Right? But he may be lying. He could very well be. I mean, he may be lying. I mean, you know, he probably. I mean, Trump's. I mean, Chappelle calls Trump an honest liar. Mm, Putin's a little bit of that. I mean, I, I don't trust anything Putin says. But he said, "Ask Bill Clinton." So why has nobody asked Bill Clinton yeah, and But that kind of plays into your question, the what-if scenario going back to yeah. after World War II. Well, what if we had lived the last 30 years of our lives with Russia more accepted in the Western world? Once again, we ain't inviting one another over for a barbecue. I mean, they're fundamentally different than we are. The, the, the point that I'm trying to make, and I don't know that I'm doing a good job of this. I mean, I read a lot about it last night. I watched uh, a, a lecture at one of the war colleges, I watched another lecture at one of the school of politics. It's this unipolar period we've lived in, with only one superpower and other aspiring. We had a kind of um, we had the rest and residue of a recent superpower, um, and Putin is kind of a nostalgic Russian. I mean, he wants to get the band back together. Is the analogy I use. But but what if at the end of the Cold War, we had accepted and because we called the shots. I mean, we run NATO. We run the international monetary. I mean, we, the dollar's the preferred currency. I mean, we're still the cat's meow. We make most of the rules. I don't know how much longer we'll do this. But but right now, especially with the Soviet Union fail, but what if Putin did make an overture to some of the leaders of the Western world about more closely working together and aligning? We got this big abundance of energy. I mean, we got natural resources galore. We don't have a lot else, but we got that. What did John McCain say? I mean, it's a superpower. It's a gas station masquerading as a superpower. I mean, there's some truth there. I mean, I don't think that's 100% inaccurate. But here's here's where I think we are. I think historically, I use this a lot. I mean, let's say that Josh and I are, are, are leaving a restaurant one night, and we got to walk through, a I don't know, a, a place we're not 100% comfortable with for half a block. And Josh looks down the uh, kind of an alleyway and says, hey, man, I mean, th- there's something happening down there. And you know how Eddie Murphy says white people are bad about this anyway. We walk toward the danger. You know, the black person says, I'm out here. I don't want any part of that. White people just kind of walk toward the danger. So I tell Josh, I wonder what's happening down there. Let's go check it out. <laughs> and Josh is like, nah, man, um, let's don't go down there. Come on, Josh, let's go see what's happening. Somebody may need our help. So we walk down the alleyway, and there's someone with a knife in their heart. And standing beside are two people. One's Billy Gray and one's Charles Manson. I mean, I don't know that Manson did it. I didn't see him do it. But my money's on Manson, right? I mean, isn't that fair? I mean, a man laying dead in an alley, knife in his heart. Charles Manson and Billy Graham are standing there. Who's your money on? We've always had this debate with Russia and America as if we're 100% honest and trustworthy, and they're not. They're not. I'm sure of that. I mean, their, their leadership is corrupt. Their leadership is 100% corrupt. But we're not non-corrupt. I mean, where are we on that sliding scale? I mean, let's say Putin is the most corrupt leader in the history of mankind. I don't think he is, but let's say he is. For argument's sake, Putin is, there, there's never been 
a more ruthless and corrupt dictator than Vladimir Putin. During the Cold War, we looked at America as the good guys. I mean, we, we would never do that. We would always do this. I mean, we're, we're promoting freedom and liberties and confronting communism. Well, all of a sudden, our people are going like, well, I mean, I, yeah, I think they're corrupt. I think they're bad, but I'm not sure how good we are. That's the losing of the moral authority. And, and, and the question you ask yourselves, and I don't know the answer to this. You know your answer introspectively. Where is America in that sliding scale? Are we closer to Putin? Are we closer to Mother Teresa? Are we altruistic? Are we genuine? Are we sincere? Do we really care about the 42-year-old male in Ukraine? Or is this all about weakening Putin? And we don't care how many young Ukrainians are killed. Well, I mean, they killed all the young ones. The middle-aged Ukrainians. We don't care how many they kill. Let's take a break. Got a call. We'll be back in just a second. 843-661-0937. We got an announcement to make. I want to congratulate Josh. Josh is uh, badgered the Haley campaign and scheduled to appear tomorrow at 9.05 on Wake Up Carolina is former governor of South Carolina, current presidential candidate, Nikki Haley. Um, and I'm not talking polling with her because the polling does not look uh, favorable. Something told me a week and a half ago that this South Carolina primary is going to be closer than even the polls said. And, and I normally follow my instinct and my gut, and I think I understand the lay of the land in the Republican primary. I mean, I've encountered the Republican voters across this state in a very direct and consequential way. But the polls say clearly something opposite. I mean, the polls say that Trump is so far ahead that it's not going to. The, the question Nikki's got to ask is, where do you go after that? I mean, if your former governor of South Carolina lose by 25 or 30 points, I mean, where do you go after after that? Someone who doesn't have to worry about that is great. To, so scheduled to appear tomorrow at 905, former governor and current presidential candidate, Nikki Haley. Great Television's senior national editor, White House correspondent, John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you, sir? Hey, good morning to you. Hope you're doing well today. Nikki Haley, good get for you. Excellent. I've been trying to get Nikki Haley. Impossible. Even though we cover the whole state of South Carolina, great television does. Uh, it'd be a great opportunity for her to spread her message in every corner of the state on television, and we're the top-ranked station in all of these different markets as well. You know, I read something in the National Review this morning, John. You'll be interested in this. I read the article, and then I read the comments, because I want to know what fellow conservatives are thinking about the articles yeah, sure. and stories. And they're talking about the poll that had – there's a Winthrop poll that came out yesterday, and they do a good job of polling South Carolina primaries. I mean, they really do. And it had Trump up yeah. 36. And somebody commented, it's a never-Trumper on National Review, said, well, I mean, South Carolina sets up for Trump. And I'm commenting, well, she's the former governor. of I mean, what state does set up better for Haley? And if she gets beat by a resounding margin, I don't know where she goes, but it's not my, my decision to make. Speaking of Trump, the Supreme Court will decide whether or not to take up Trump's immunity case. John, I know enough to be dangerous. You know much more than I. What is the central points of this Supreme Court decision? Well, the central point is whether or not uh, Donald Trump's lawyer's legal theory is one that is worth hearing about. Their theory is that a president, a former president in this case, has absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for any of his actions while he took as president. You may recall one of the hypotheticals asked of Donald Trump's lawyers at the appellate level, and I was in the court when this question was asked, uh, could a president be prosecuted for ordering SEAL Team 6 
to take out his political opponent. And Donald Trump's lawyer had a lot of difficulty answering that very basic hypothetical question. Uh, That's the reason why this is a terrible argument that is being made by Donald Trump's lawyers. I think the argument, I'll tell you something, Ken, I think this argument is coming at the direct direction of Donald Trump. They don't want to make this argument of absolute immunity. They want to talk about immunity, limited immunity, but not absolute immunity. That's a very difficult uh, argument to make to the nine justices of the Supreme Court, and I don't think they're going to actually take up this case. I think they're going to let the ruling by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals stand. I am a big believer in bang for your buck. If you're trying to do something big, what is the return on that investment? And as a Republican, I don't understand why the House was com- – I think Mayorkas has sucked at his job, but I'm a conservative. You would expect me to think Mayorkas has sucked at his job, but I don't know what you <laughs> yeah. get out of an impeachment of the House knowing that it goes nowhere in the Senate. What am I missing? The, well, the only thing you're missing is the pressure, the immense pressure that the relatively new House Speaker Mike Johnson is under from the conservatives within the Freedom Caucus. Uh, they want a head. They want, they want a scalp. Uh, and Mayorkas is that head. Mayorkas is that scalp. They want to impeach him, you know, have it uh, on historical record that a cabinet secretary of President Biden was impeached, even though, as you point out, it's not going anywhere. You need 67 votes to remove, to convict uh, an individual in the U.S. Senate. Democrats hold a 51-49 advantage, so it's not going anywhere in the Senate. But I think that those that were urging Mike Johnson to take this action, to put this on the floor of the House, want to send a political message to the Biden administration. I think that is what the impeachment of Mayorkas is essentially all about. John, the last subject I want to touch on with you, to me, it's the the most interesting of all going on in Washington today. The Senate Republicans have passed a bill to fund, additionally, fighting in Ukraine. We talked a lot about Russia. We talked a lot about Ukraine this morning. I've got a theory, and, and the majority of Republican primary voters today are concerned about accountability, about, you know, where, where the money's going, what is the objective. The Senate can vote on some of these things that are out of sorts with the base voter. The House can't because they're running every two years. I understand the Senate is annoyed with the Speaker, but to me the Speaker is doing what is reflecting his voting base that will vote on his caucus every two years, not every six years. Well, that's right. You know, that's, you know he's concerned about his, his political future. Uh, he has heard uh, what those, again, like most conservatives in the House have, you could call it a threat, you could call it a promise, uh, you could call it a warning, uh, essentially saying you put that bill on the floor of the House for an up or down vote, uh, your speakership is over. Uh, And so, you know, this is what uh, leaders have to decide. You know, they have to decide whether or not uh, to back down to those threats coming from perhaps a a very vocal minority uh, or whether to look out for the best interests uh, in terms of national security of our country uh, and global security. And so, you know, as you know, that vote in the Senate was 70 to 29. Uh, You know, you had over two dozen Senate Republicans voting for that legislation and they did it, you know, because they believe that it's very important. It's important in the short term for the United States. It's important for the long term as well. Uh, and I think that if there was an up or down vote, Ken, in the House of Representatives, if the House Speaker allowed that bill to be voted on on the floor of the House, it would pass. 
it would pass with bipartisanship. Um, but it's just a matter of, you know, Republicans control the House, and that power allows the Speaker to, to decide what legislation actually gets voted upon. And uh, he has indicated that he's reluctant to put that legislation on the floor of the House for an up or down vote. Well explained. John, thank you for your time, sir. Have a great day, great weekend, and, um, and we'll talk next week. Thanks so much, Ken. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. And uh, good luck to you with that interview as well. Thank you. John Decker, great television senior national editor, White House correspondent, um, updating us from a kind of inside the beltway perspective on uh, the politics. It's so interesting that when, when, when John explains funding for Ukraine, it's like, well, who isn't for this? Hmm? Go to a NASCAR race. Go to an SEC football game. Go to an ACC basketball game. Outside of Chapel Hill. Don't go to Durham or Chapel Hill. <laughs> I'd say that now. Or maybe UVA. Go to a basketball game at Clemson. Go to a basketball game at Florida State. I didn't say a basketball game at UVA, Duke, or, or the University of North Carolina. That's the wine and cheese crowd. They would be more inclined to have Argyle sweater vest and I think, support of a Ukraine, additional Ukrainian funding. I think John goes to the Georgetown basketball game. But I mean, I'm, I'm, and the women. I think he goes some of the uh, – I think he went to the UConn Lady Gamecock the, basketball yeah. game. Uh, last year, John is a good guy, a very good guy, but I think John will admit that the majority of his life has been spent inside the belly of the beast. You're going to be heavily influenced by living and operating and making a living inside the belly of the beast. I respect that. Um, it really plays into the lack of, I don't want to say sympathy. That's not what I think Trump world is looking for. It's a lack of understanding. It's a lack of respect. I, I, I tell all of my Democrat friends, I don't know why I tell them this because I wish they'd keep doing what they're doing. Why do you feel the need? or Do you score points with the DNC? Is there some quota of insulting Trump voters? I mean, they're hayseeds and hillbillies and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're God and guns and clinging and all these. I mean, I just don't understand that. I understand insulting Trump. I certainly am aware of some of the human imperfection that he personifies. Fair enough. I mean, I'm that, you're that, everybody else is that. But why would you insult 75 million Americans? I just don't know what you gained there. Let's go to the phone. Dan in Savannah. Good morning, Dan. You're on the air. Good morning, fellas. Caught me in the middle of my cereal bite. Sorry. <laughs> Good deal. Listen, I've been, I've been listening to you for a couple of years on the, um, on the radio app and I uh, felt compelled because you're having a tough time. I need to be one of them callers that calls in. I've been listening too much. Call every once in a while. Um, love listening to your guys. Congratulations, Josh. I look forward to listening tomorrow morning. But uh, what motivated me as caller a little while ago, while I was in the gym, because I'm trying to stay healthy, Ken, um, she was saying, uh, talking about Ukraine. But correct me if I'm wrong. I'm remembering about a year ago hearing about uh, what was going on geopolitically. And Ukraine was an independent, and part of the treaty was that Russia um, would stay on their side and the uh, NATO would not recruit any additional countries to NATO. And that's exactly what they were doing, is they were recruiting uh, Ukraine to become part of NATO. Was that correct? That's correct. Well, I don't know recruit is the right word. There were ongoing conversations about Ukraine's eventual inclusion in the NATO. I mean, that's very, that's very vague, but that's intentionally vague because I don't know that we know a lot more than that. But, but they were supposed to be neutral. 
Well, if if you look at the adversarial side of NATO and Russia, if all of a sudden NATO is trying to gain land and bring them into NATO, Russia's, if I were Russia, I'd be a little ticked off. And I think that they went into Crimea, Crimea um, before that was going to happen. And now, you know, we can't have them join NATO because it's after the fact. And that can't bring us into the war. But, you know, aside from all the money, that just makes me sick about listening to all the corruption because I believe both sides are corrupt as hell. The difference is uh, Russia has a dictator who can monitor and push all the strings. We've got a whole uh, a whole three branches of government that is corrupt and got their hands in the pockets of the, um, the, the money and the oligarchs. So how do you control that? It's always an ebb and flow and going back and forth, right? Well, that, that's my two cents on that. But last thing, um, why is it okay for us to send a drone and kill somebody for whatever reason on foreign soil? Just, I was just thinking this. Does Russia ever do that? Does, does Great Britain ever send something and kill an adversary? And wouldn't the world be upset? I mean, uh, I'm all right, red, white, and blue, but sometimes we push our agenda a little bit too much, don't we? Yeah, and I think well, thank you yeah. for the call. And appreciate it, Dan. I think one. Of, I think one of the one of the coolest things we're experiencing, and I think Josh will be blessed to live in this era. Um, we don't take our government at its word anymore. I'm sorry, Rev, and I did. I mean, I, I've, I've, I'm a convert. I mean, I, I'm admitting. I mean, my hand before God in heaven. I was gullible. I was naive. I believed when when the NBC News uh, evening desk reported that our government was doing X, Y, or Z. I believed, by and large, they were shooting us straight. And we found they don't. We found they're not. We found historically they've not and don't. Um, I'll give an example. So, so all of a sudden, we're asked to spend additional funds in Ukraine. Joshua, we'll take a break. Give me two seconds. We're asked to spend additional funds in Ukraine. The American public believe that the Ukrainian government is corrupt. I mean, the polls show that. The, the, the polls are fairly divided about sending additional funds to Ukraine. But when you ask the question, hey, do you trust the Ukrainian government? About 66% of Americans say, no, not really. I mean, I, you know, I think they're corrupt. Um, so if you believe the government of Ukraine is corrupt, why don't we have a right to ask where the money's going? Why don't we have a right to ask what the objective is? But instead of, you know, giving those questions credibility, the, the insiders, the establishment, the elite, you know what, they're traitor and treason. I mean, we're traitors. We're treasonous. No, we aren't. We're, we're regular people asking real questions about where our taxpayer dollars are going. So, so when the government had the moral authority, we didn't ask these questions. But all of a sudden, once again, I'm being redundant. You ready? The decentralizing of media has allowed all of us to have a voice and some degree of, you know, auxiliary or, or be, be alternate information and opinion. The American people believe the Ukrainian government is corrupt. The natural next question is, why are we spending a corrupt government spend? I mean, why are we sending a corrupt government more money? without accountability, without a clear objective. But we're but if we ask that we're 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 treasonous, we're traitors to our nation, take a break, back in a few. 
I'm audibly impaired, Josh. I mean, I've done the best I can. I've got these lozenges. Riff went hunted. I mean, I know he's my buddy because he went trying to find me some bourbon. I did. And I didn't have any lemon bourbon. We, we had some back in the, the kitchen here. And but you said it's, it's just rest. I mean, it requires rest. Yeah. And, uh, I can't rest until the weekend. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you my word. I'll, I'll, I'll rest and, and take bourbon therapy all week. How about that? I'll well, rest. And it's vocal rest. I want to be specific here. It's vocal rest. Not Don't talk as much. You, uh, you have to hard. until 10 o'clock. I don't talk much when I drink bourbon. I sing a lot. <laughs> you can't do that either. Yeah. I'll sing some good old vocal classic rock rest. and roll. Let's go to the phone. Rick in Sumter listening to WDXY. Uh, good morning, Rick. You're on the air. Hey, good morning. Um, Ken, the other day you said something that just kind of made me laugh out loud. You used the phrase, big tent of the Republican Party. And that kind of made me laugh because, you know, back in 2020, the Republicans couldn't even write a platform because their nominee might do a tweet the next morning, you know, and what it should say is just an asterisk, check, truth social every morning. And anybody who is not of the true faith is branded a rhino or a neocon. I just want to know what Republicans believe, because I'm a... I'm not going to vote for Trump because I'm afraid of him. You know, he might have been tempered a little bit last time by the idea of running for re-election. Now he knows there is no way legally he can maintain power after 2028. He's already said he believes that he should be totally immune, even if he goes over the line. And I, I don't get it. What does a Republican believe, and why should I become a Republican? Rick, the, the only thing I've said over and over and over again is I want to be a part of a political movement that empowers the American worker, the American family, and the American way of life. Sending money to Ukraine doesn't do that. I agree with you 100%. NAFTA didn't do that. GATT didn't do that. TPP didn't do that. What we've got to decide, you and I, I mean, we can start here. What I've got to do is not insult you and what you want the Republican Party to be. And you can't insult me and what I want the Republican. Because I think you and I have far more in common than not. And and, and, and we've got to, we've got to cut through some of that minutiae. And it's not minutiae all the time. It's pretty substantial at times. But I mean, there's some fundamental disagreements that we have about this new iteration and the historical Republican Party that you and I probably grew up in. And it was neoconservatism. Exactly. I mean, it was kind of a... Um, you know, believing the world's a dangerous place and America has to intervene, you know, about every chance it's given. I respect that. I just don't buy it as strongly as I once did. But when I say the big tent, what, what I'm, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, and, I, and I've said it over and over, I don't understand it. I don't insult neoconservatives. I disagree with them. But I don't think I've ever insulted a neoconservative. A third of the Republican Party take every chance they can to insult the Trump movement by calling them rubes and hayseeds and dumb and they're not historically aware. And, and I just don't know what we gain by the despicables. that. I get that. Yeah, and, and I don't know what we gain. By. I think we can have legitimate debates and conversations and even disagreements about the post-Reagan, pre-Trump Republican Party, what we did right, what we did wrong, and where we go from here. And I don't hear much of that, seems, Rick. Well, it just seems to me, and I agree with you, and by the way, I am very America first. I believe that if we let an immigrant in, it should be to our benefit. You know, we've got a lot in common. But when you're urging for polite discourse 
and then supporting Donald Trump, you know, to me that just seems in conflict with each other. Because but but uh, let me ask you this. Is there another way? I mean, I understand what you're saying. I'd love for polite discourse to work. But but is there is there do you really believe that the entrenched element in the Republican Party would respond to polite discourse? Um I think right now, instead of moving America forward, it's more about harming our enemies and our enemies on both sides tend to be our fellow Americans. Correct. I wish we could go back to that old idea of the loyal opposition. But apparently that is just impossible now. Well said. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that. And and I understand that. I mean, I, Rick's a level-headed guy. I mean, nobody believes Rick's some reigning maniac, you know, never Trumper. And I, I just, the, the point that I've tried to make over and over and over again, I don't think, and if I do call me out on it, I don't think I insult neocons. I mean, I don't think I insult the establishment. I'm very sarcastic, but I do that just by nature. I mean, I say things very sarcastically. But, but I don't think, I mean, I, I'm trying to think back on some of the things that I've said that I regret. I mean, I've said a lot of things I regret, but I don't think I've insulted the one-third of the party who would rather Trump right off in the sunset and let's just c- kind of consider this a bad chapter in history. I mean, I, I don't think I do. They, they, they may interpret my comments as insulting, but it's not intentional. I don't intend. When you say that somebody is, you know, a deplorable, you intentionally insult. I mean, there's intent there. The basket of deplorables, the despicable Trump voter, the um, the unaware of history Trump voter. I mean, those are insults. And and I believe for the party to be successful, there's got to be some coming to grips with this one-third, two-third phenomenon. There's no denying, and Rick's not still there, there's no denying this. And off the record, they'll admit it because I've talked to several. I mean, I've, I, I got two or three never-Trumpers in my world that we maintain a very, very deep and sincere friendship. I know how they feel about Trump. They know how I feel about Trump. Normally, we don't talk about it. But when you, we do, you, you know the one thing they can't deny, and they'll say it this way, the dude's brought a lot of new people to the dance. And you can't deny that. I mean, the guy has brought a lot of new people to the process, and there's no denying that. Uh, that's about the only credit they'll give Trump. That's about it. <laughs> He's a bad guy. He's historically unaware. He's a dangerous man um, on his own volitions. He would do things that American presidents have no, no, no reason to do. I mean, they, they believe that. They genuinely believe that he's a dangerous man if he gets in the White House again. But they'll also admit, but he's touched a nerve. I mean, he, his message has resonated with a universe of people who historically uh, low propensity voters. I, I said a couple of weeks back, the really smart people on Trump's team believe the strategy of the campaign has to be, believe it or not, to find the other four and a half million Americans out there that are more likely than not to vote for Trump that haven't gotten to the dance yet. I mean, that, that's hard to believe because we think Trump's drawn them all out. I mean, there's still about four and a half million people in about eight states, six are swing states, and they're signing uh, precinct managers to some of those districts, they've identified four and a half million low propensity. I mean, listen, let's be, you ready to be racist? I mean, they're normally non-college graduate white males. I mean, that's who they are. Um, non-college educated white voters is the backbone of the Trump movement. Nobody denies that. I mean, that's that's pretty easy to identify 
and see at some of the rallies, and I'm not being judgmental by the way someone looks, but you got to believe ain't a lot of PhDs going to Trump rallies. Let's just leave it that way. Um, a lot of guys with dirt under their fingernails, scars on the back of their hands, you know, suntans, working outside. You, you know where I'm headed. I mean, that's not, that's, there's nothing there. I mean, you try to make something of that in this woke, inclusive, diverse, equity society, but I mean, there's nothing there. That's just the whole hard truth. He has brought more people who have historically not voted to the party, and that's why I say the Big Ten. Can, can, can those people and the Bill Crystals of the world come to some sort of amends? No. No. I mean, there's no way. I mean, every time Bill Crystal speaks or tweets, he insults Trump voters. He has no curiosity whatsoever what they believe in. They don't care much for Bill Crystal. I mean, he's got a latte and a Patagonia fleece. Not their kind of guy. But how can Rick and I, I mean, I'm being, I mean, I'm not saying Rick literally and me, but how can Rick and I come to some amends? How can we say, hey, the Democrats are bad. Trump's, Trump's different. But, but, but how can we construct a political, a winning political message around a very controversial political figure? Take a break. Back in a few. Three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Nick in Lexington. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning, guys. Uh, Ken, I've been thinking a lot about your uh, inversion to the Obamacare and the guy, the fat guy, which is probably me. But I'm not on Obamacare. But me being in construction, and I always worried about. We lost you there for a second. I'm sorry. Let me see if I can do better. Okay. Yeah. We'll just wait. Ken, what I was saying, me being in construction as in as younger and being an eat what I kill guy, I had insurance with my wife, but I never went except for regular, you know, I got the cold or something because I was really worried, never got a physical because I was worried about getting tagged with a pre-existing condition. Because I knew if my marriage went south or something like that, I couldn't afford it. So I didn't go. So that's one thing I don't know that you consider, just as a reality. And then what really got upset for me was when I learned that they had, some states had a prudent precondition. So someone like me that should have went to the doctor didn't go to the doctor could get denied coverage because we should have known you were going to get cancer. Does that make sense? Yeah. And what I also understood was that the way insurance has transformed with the lobby thing, it's not like it was when I was young and learned. But let's say they say, listen, if we we have 19 million nine, 19-year-olds, we're going to spend $19 million dollars that's a dollar a day. We're going to charge them $385 a year for their insurance. But then once they, and that's for all the 19 year olds. And then what they do is they just pick out the healthy ones. And that's the only way I can reconcile in my mind how can you give in 2006 the head of U.S. healthcare insurance company gets a $100 million bonus. Would you understand you, what I'm saying? Yeah, of course I do. I mean, it's a broken model. And I understand your position, too. Well, I mean, would you agree with me here 
that a, a if you if you're requiring an insurance company to insure someone that has a pre-existing condition, that's not really insurance. You're asking them to assume a liability. Well, you are, but when they set up their numbers, my point is that they did it for everybody. No, but 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 stick with me for a second. But you would agree with okay. me conceptually there. I, I, listen, it's a, it's a loss. Correct. It's about shared loss. And and, and that what that's you're saying. Well, I mean, and, and listen, I, I got to level with you. I don't have a pre-existing addition. I'm pretty healthy. I'm saying so. I'm looking well, through I the lens either. of someone who believes he's getting screwed. Um, I get it. But, but, but I, I don't have one either, but I'm just saying I didn't go to the doctor because I was worried for one well, I mean, for I, my future. When they ask me who my family physician is, you know what my answer is? I don't know. I don't know. I'm 60 years old. I've never spent a night in the hospital. I've been disgustingly, knock on wood, disgustingly healthy. I'm right. healthy today as I've been probably ought to take better care of myself today than I ever did. But, but Nick, the point I'm trying to make and the point I try to make is – if we're going to be, and, and I say half pregnant with the government and the insurance, why don't we just turn it over to the government? Why don't we just nationalize health insurance? Um, because, and once again, I'm a fairly conservative guy. On most issues, I am less government is better government. But we've already made a decision to allow government to have so much influence over our health care economy that is 20% of GDP. Why don't we just take the big leap and let them run everything in some modified fashion. I don't know of a better answer. I'd love to say, well, we do this and we do that and we tweak this and we tweak that. No, I don't believe there's a better way to do it. So let's nationalize it. Ken, I have said we can solve lots of problems that they don't want to solve. I can solve the health care thing that I would know everybody would buy. If we said for every Social Security number from zero to whoever's got a Social Security number, we're going to send $3,000 to some insurance company. You tell me 30 days before your birthday, 30 days after your birthday, where it's going. It ain't going to you, but we'll send it somewhere. Then you'd have products for $3,000, and you'd have healthy people insured and unhealthy people insured. And you'd also have doctors that say, listen, Mr. Ard, I understand you want me to do your bypass surgery, but I'm not. I don't really deal with Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina. Now, if you want to transfer mid-year for $200 and go to Aetna, then I'll be glad to do your surgery. That way you get doctors who complain, and you get people who complain, and then you get insurance companies to be competitive instead of going up to Washington to try to make advantages, is my is my cynical view. Well, and but but the problem is, I mean, and I, I know it's not this easy to answer, but but I'm no dummy, and I know you aren't. Rev and I have this conversation. When I get a notice or a bill or some paperwork for the insurance companies, I got to carry it to nine lawyers. I mean, it right. makes me feel stupid. I know I'm not dumb. I didn't say I was a rocket scientist, but I'm not a moron until I open that envelope from the insurance company. Then I feel, I feel like a moron. And my question is, are they trying to make me feel like a moron, or is this the easiest way they can do it? I just think there, there's got to be – either we go to the free market-based health care and we, and we cut government loose and we do some of these incentives you're talking about, or we give health care over to the government. And I don't know. They just figured out the best way they know how. You don't think a quasi-subsidy uh, would work? Yeah. I mean, I'd be very – I've always said – yeah, that that would be on the table if I were in the room. Now, now I don't think right. I've got all the answers, and I and I think for every solution you offer, 
it's a little bit like the bubble in the rug. You know, I step on right. the bubble and it's not there anymore, but it's somewhere else. I just wonder how many of those cause and effects we're going to deal with and how much of that, um, you know, ripple in the, I mean, when I ran for office, Nick, I always said, and you're a business guy, I always said that what government fails to understand is when they drop a rock in the water, it's not just that rock. Those ripples go for a long time and they cause unintended damage to certain aspects of business. I just think we've got to get to a better model. Obamacare is not the answer. Obamacare made health insurance worse in America than better, and it's time we revisit that. Agreed. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. And my point has been, I mean, in every aspect of our life, that there's some degree of personal responsibility. Probably not as much as I'd like. Probably not as much as most conservatives would like. And I think there's a balance in the mindset of a liberal. Liberal believes that there's fairness and inequality, unfairness, inequality in society, and government's got to address that. That's kind of the mindset of a liberal. Conservative says, well, I mean, the fair comes in October. You know, do the best you can. Animal spirits of, of, of capitalism will win the day. I mean, over the long haul, the market will address issues and correct issues much better than some government-induced model. My problem with the Obamacare is I'm not unhealthy. I mean, let's be honest. My problem with Obamacare is I don't have some major health impediment. I don't have cancer. I don't have high blood. I'm not on some sort of, I mean, I don't take any medication. I've never spent a single night in the hospital. Most of you can't say that. I've been lucky. I'd like to believe that the last 20 years of my life, I've taken over some ownership of my health and well-being, and I'm not being rewarded for it. That's my problem. So, so I'm being gut-level honest with you. Uh, when the person gets four pieces of chicken, and they're already wearing a 60 in the waist pants, I mean, yeah, it bothers me. Sure, it bothers me. It doesn't mean I don't like overweight people. It doesn't mean you have a right to be overweight. I mean, that's your prerogative. You do what you got to do. But you're transferring that cost to my ledger, and I'm offended by that. You didn't do it. I mean, when you're eating four pieces of chicken, you don't know that that guy just ran the marathon is paying for some of your health insurance, but he is. And Obamacare basically legitimized that. So when you go on Obamacare, because I've done this because I don't work for the government and I don't have a big group plan. I mean, I'm an independent contractor. I've got three or four partners. And we all eat what we kill, like Nick said. So I don't have the luxury of, of being on some massive, you know, program that has enormous government buying power. I did when I was on county council. I did when I was lieutenant governor. I'm not either now. So I'm out there doing the best I can trying to find affordable health care. And when I go on the exchange, the first question they ask me is not what my blood pressure is, not what my BMI is, not whether I have cancer or not, not whether my bone density is good or not, whether not whether I've got some other sort of pre-existing condition. They want to know how much I make. And I'm going like, you ready? I'm like, damn. I mean, this is America. I'm not buying a car. I'm not trying to get a credit card. Why do you care how much money I make? Well, that's the, the, that's the price shuffled in Obamacare. It's the socialization of 20% of our GDP. They've got to find enough healthy people to pay too much for health insurance so the unhealthy won't have to pay enough. And that's just not American to me. I understand shared benefit. I understand shared cost. I get to some degree we're all in this thing together. I mean, to some degree I've always accepted that there has to be a consideration for the common good. But when I go to buy health care, and I'm as healthy now as I've ever been, and the first question I'm asked by my federal government is how much money do you make, 
Who's not offended by that? Well, I can tell you who's not offended. The person who just ate three plates of the buffet and went back for four pieces of fried chicken. And he doesn't know he's screwing me, but he is. And I don't think he's intentionally screwing me. And yes, I want to go pop him in the back of the head. Put that damn chicken down. You're the reason I can't afford health insurance. (laughs) 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 Can't you just go to a restaurant and enjoy a meal? You don't have thinking to eat, too much. You don't have to eat the whole damn coop. Put some of that chicken back. <laughs> go to a buffet <laughs> and just enjoy your darn food. Gosh. Let's go to the ball. Oh, you are not normal. Uh, Ray in Florence. Hey, Ray. Yeah, this is this is Ray. I listened to your your comment about the government health insurance, and my own, my first comment was, if you think that uh, government health insurance would be good, just work with the VA for a while. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. I've heard horror story after horror story after horror story. I just believe we've got to make a decision. I have no clue what the answer is to health care. But, but I do know this. When Obamacare became law of the land and the insurance companies screamed and Big Pharma screamed, I think it was all an act. I mean, there, there is no way that Obamacare became law of the land without Big Pharma and the insurance company's fingerprints all over it. I mean, they, 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 they played a game. I mean, they had a PR campaign. Wow, this is going to change our world forever. Go back and look at what the valuation of the stocks were before Obamacare and after. Look at the big insurance companies. Look at the big pharmaceutical companies. Pre-Obamacare, tell me what their, their market value was. Tell me what their market value is today. How many times have I said this? You ready? Don't follow the money some of the time. Don't follow the money most of the time. Follow the money all of the time. And when Obamacare became law of the land, there was a high five amongst lobbyists at Big Pharma and the insurance companies, unlike any high five. Imagine if you had a product and the government said, you buy this or else. I mean, imagine radio ads. What, what would happen to the cost of radio ads if the federal government passed a law that said every business in America must buy radio ads? What would happen to the cost of radio ads? It would go through the roof. Why? Because you don't have a choice now. The government said you must buy my product. So when the government said when Obamacare revealed that you've got to buy health insurance or else, What do you think the insurance companies did? Wow, let's not take advantage of these hardworking people and charge them too much for health insurance just because the big government said they must buy our product. Of course not. We're so dismissive of the human impulse. For some reason, we believe society works on goodwill and altruism. I think society operates on you get what you can get because I'm getting what I can. You get as much of it as you can get because I'm getting as much of it as I can get. That's human nature. That's been around since the beginning of time when God set Adam and Eve up in heaven, or excuse me, in paradise. It was good enough for the man. I'm just saying. The woman wanted a little better. And here we are. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Going to meet some fried chicken today at 12. <laughs> I don't know how many pieces I'll eat. Maybe I'll just, anyway, uh, I'll leave that alone. I got to be distinguished now. We got a man over here with us with a That's badge right. and a gun, and we dedicate every um one Thursday every month. We invite law enforcement into the the studio. One of the um 
I don't know, Rev, one of the public service parts of what we do here as local radio is engage our community uh, about more serious debates on how many pieces of fried chicken somebody should or should not eat. Mike Nunn with the Florence County Sheriff's Office is with us this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. So so sometimes we kind of uh, talk over a topic before we go on the air. We didn't do that today. But you said that you guys are dealing with more scams than you normally do. Uh, I, my job in, in the weirdest way is to try and scam people every morning and, <laughs> and, and not the way that breaks the law, but into, into believing what I believe. But this is more serious. I mean, what sort of scams are we talking about and how can people be more prepared? Yeah. And, you know, one of the great things that you all allow us to do is to come on air and talk to your vast listening audience and uh, provide information that sometimes we have a tough time getting out. And on this particular issue, we put out press release after press release, the regular media outlets, um, you know, give us some coverage on it. Um, We put it on our Facebook page, um, but uh, really anxious for the opportunity to speak to, to your audience today about just the proliferation that we are seeing of uh, telephone scams uh, in our area. And it's really all over the place, but, um, you know, we deal with it uh, on a fairly frequent basis. And the scam goes sort of like this. You get a call uh, on your phone, and it may look like it comes from a local number. Actually, it might even look like it comes from the sheriff's office number. And this voice comes over the phone and says, uh, hey, um, this is uh, Deputy So-and-so with the Florence County Sheriff's Office. And sometimes they use an actual deputy's name. Um, We have a warrant for your arrest. Um, You did not appear for jury duty. And um, I have a bench warrant. And uh, you can save yourself all the embarrassment and trouble of uh, an arrest if you'll just uh, uh, get a gift card or give us your credit card number and we can go ahead and take care of this fine um, uh, because we know that you you don't want all the trouble uh, and embarrassment of an arrest. Well, you know, most people would get that call and they go, well, this is legit. You know, gosh, I, hey, I didn't get a notice to come to jury duty. I must have missed it in the mail, but if they've got a bench warrant for me, you know, I, I must. Folks, it's a scam. There's, it is a hundred percent straight up scam. Um, but you would be stunned at the number of people who succumb to it. And um, these folks are sophisticated. Uh, it's a fishing, spearing type um, uh, scam. These folks are not here. They are either offshore somewhere or in another state. Some of them will have an accent that even sounds southern. Uh, so they've, they practice this thing really well, but, uh, you know, you would be stunned to know how many folks, uh, actually will go get that card, um, go to a CVS or go to a, um, a drugstore, get a gift card. These people are always going to want immediate payment. They want to keep you on the telephone. You know, it's urgent that you deal with this or we're coming to get you, um, or give us your credit card number or something, and and people unfortunately will give thousands of dollars to these folks, and it's heartbreaking. Uh, and they typically target 
um, uh, elderly folks, you know, people who've lived a long, virtuous life with zero blemish on their record, and the thought that at this point in their life they might get, um, you know, their picture on the on the website, of, you know, having been arrested is just, you know, they do anything to to keep from that from happening. And, and the other insidious part about this is, Ken, uh, once they get them, they're going to come back to them again because, you know, you might have an elderly woman that's living fairly decently on her own, but if she discloses to her adult children that she's been scammed, well, that might be the thing that tips them over the edge and, well, it's time for mom to go into a home or it's time for us to take over mom's finances so so this doesn't happen again. All well-intentioned. So there's even a hesitancy on the part of some of these elderly victims to even report it, um, much less tell their family members. And so they they're victimized in silence and it, it's, it's heartbreaking. We've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars go to scammers from, uh, elderly folks. And so folks, the message here is the sheriff's office will never ask you for money ever. We are not a collection agency for the court. If you get a call from us, or you think you get a call from us asking for money, hang up. It's not us. If we have a warrant for you, we're not calling. We're just going to come get you, okay? So um, please don't fall for the scams. Mike, and then compounding the problem, I got to believe, I mean, there are conventional crimes and conventional police work. Someone breaks in a store, someone robs a bank, someone does something we've historically become accustomed to. There's a certain way you go after that offender, but in this, in the cyber world and in, in the digital era, I got to believe it's more challenging to find out who these people are and how you can apprehend them. Well, and we have, um, some investigators that specialize in cyber crime and financial crimes, and they are excellent. Um, we work with state and federal partners, secret service, federal communications commission, FBI, um, SLED, uh, Fusion Center, trust me, we have, we have tried to find these folks. It's impossible because they simply, they're like the vapor. You know, if you think you're going to find them in one place and, and you go and it's just like they disappear into the mist, this, um, you know, internet, um, you can do anything from anywhere. And, uh, and that's the problem that we have is, is, is not going to be possible to um to apprehend these folks and so so they're actually getting all this stuff digitally you know when you when you pay them it's all digital there's no no physical address anywhere and and trust me we have we have worked uh tirelessly to try to find a um a solution to this and the best solution is not to be a victim to start with you get that phone call it sounds suspicious just hang up is it time? I mean, when I think cybersecurity, I think of the federal government. I mean, notably, they're responsible for our, you know, security and safety and, I don't know, credit card numbers, debit card numbers, banking information. But is it time for local law enforcement to consider uh, beefing up cybersecurity and asking local governments for more money to not wait on the federal government to do what needs to be done? 
Well, certainly the uh, advanced training that uh, our investigators go through for uh, cyber crimes is uh, is paramount. We uh, we spend a fair amount educating our sending our um, cyber and financial crimes investigators to um, uh, classes put on by um, you know cybersecurity experts uh, all around the country. And uh, so we feel like we're as, as competent to uh, address these issues as anybody is, but nobody's having success in finding these folks. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a problem everywhere. And um, you know, we just urge folks, uh, please just hang up. Uh, it's not us. Uh, we don't do that. And, um, and please don't be a victim. And it's not just giving of money. Sometimes they'll call with a scam. Hey, I'm from the Social Security office. We want to let you know that your account's been hacked. Uh, but to confirm your identity, I need you to give us your Social Security number. Well, that should be a clue right there, folks. Um, Social Security is not going to ask you for your Social Security number. They either know it or they don't. And so anytime anyone is asking you either over the telephone or on the Internet, uh, provide us with, you know, personally identifying information, dates of birth, social security numbers, um, you know, pins on your um, uh, credit cards, passwords, all those things, um, they're a scam. Uh, We had a lady, um, sad case the other day, Um, lady was on her computer um, and this pop-up came up, hey, your your, uh, security uh, filter is, is going to expire. You know, you get those, um, uh, and she, you know, click on this now to renew your security. Well, that was a scam. And of course she clicked on it and it led her down a path. And before she knew it, she'd given up all types of information that was used to try to clean out her bank account. Mm. And, uh, so, you know, folks, please, please don't fall for the scams. We try to put this out all the time, but we we were trying to figure out what's the best way to get this message out. And our press releases, you know, go, but we said, hey, we'll be on the radio. And with this listening audience, hopefully this will get our message out. Um, so thank you for well, giving no, us the forum you. to do th- that. Thank you for the information. I do believe this is one problem I won't have because Mike said they look for people with unblemished records that, that would be afraid to have their name and face <laughs> in the newspaper. Been there, done that. So I think I'm good. I think I'm good on this one. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having us, guys. <laughs> we'll take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Talking about blemish and unblemish and your record. And, you know, uh, have you been in the front page of the newspaper? What's the song? Can't get my picture on the cover of the rolling of the mm-hmm. Rolling Stone, yeah. I had a rough go of it with the Highway Patrol when I was younger. I mean, you couldn't convince me they weren't picking on me. <laughs> but the thing was, I was driving faster than I should have been driving. Yeah. And it seems like every time I was doing that, I got caught. It's, um, it's just Oh, I'm sure. I'm well, sure I, that's the case. Well, I mean, you know, you're not young. You're <laughs> oh, young. Yeah. When you give a young boy the wheel of a car, there's something that happens. I mean, I can't explain it. They become impractical, irrational irresponsible um lena butler's with us south carolina highway patrol those were the good old days now i'm a 
mature and um and safe driving adult. law inviting well right? for the most part i am for the most part um but no you talked last month about pedestrians and apparently the message didn't get across because you want to talk more about pedestrian fatalities miss butler i believe there's a responsibility by the driver obviously but there's also responsibility of the pedestrian when, when i leave early in the morning it's dark and there are these guys and ladies who work out mm-hmm. most have reflective gear on and I see them far before I'm concerned, but at times they don't. So there is not just a responsibility by the driver, but the pedestrian as well. Exactly. That is that is so true because, you know, it's important for a pedestrian to be safe and to be seen. In order for them to be safe and be seen, of course, if you're out, whether it's dusk or whether it's dawn, you do need to have on retroreflective gear because having, those, uh, having that on, it gives the motorist you know, a better opportunity to see you. And if you do have on those reflective um, reflective gear, it's best to have it on your extremities, such as maybe your, your wrist or your ankle or even have a vest on, because once again, that gives the motorist a better chance of seeing you in low lighting. Is this just started happening, or has there always been a problem with, uh, with pedestrian automobile fatalities? Well, I would say basically it's probably always been a problem just due to the fact that a lot of times people don't know what they need to do as a pedestrian. Just like sometimes a motorist may not know what they what their responsibility is when it comes to a pedestrian. Because if you're a motorist and if you know that you've got heavy traffic in that area, by all means, and of course you need to slow down and be on the lookout for pedestrians. Also, if you're a pedestrian, what you need to do, you need to take precautions as well. You know, if you know that if, if you're a pedestrian and, and if this is a highly, you know, populated area where traffic is flowing, especially in the mornings and even in the afternoons, you need to take precautions. You know, you need to make sure that if you're walking on the roadway, make sure that you're looking out for traffic. Make sure that you're yielding to traffic. Make sure that you do have on the appropriate clothing so that you can be seen. Because last year, 2013, from January 1st uh, to February the 14th of, excuse me, 2023, we had approximately 113 fatalities, with 29 of those being pedestrians. So this year, uh, January 1st, 2024 to February 14th, 2024, we've had 97 uh, fatalities, with 13 of those being pedestrians. So... Obviously, we're doing something right because we are on the decline by 16. So we want to continue to get those numbers to to de- for those numbers to decrease. So you know, it's everybody's responsibility. You know, whether you're motorist, whether you're pedestrian, whatever your role is, while you're on the roadway, it is important for you to do your part. You know, one one part of automobile ownership. We were talking during the break. One part of automobile ownership. Is to know the rules, the laws, the operating procedures of, mm-hmm. of the Highway Patrol. I, I don't think most of us understand with a degree of clarity. What is the law on window tinting? The law on window tinting, it is 27%. And, you know, that's the, it's, it's 27%. And also the front window, your front windshield cannot, well, it is against the law for the, the entire windshield to be tinted. It can go up to the AS1 line only. But like I said, it is the tent is twenty is twenty seven percent. What what if what if a young person they're more inclined to do this? Rev has a story. But what if a young person has more tent than that? 
Is it a ticket? Is it a warning? How much time does he have to go get it corrected? Well, most of the time, this is what I'll tell you. You know, if you do get um, a citation for wind tent, most of the time, you know, how can I say this? If you take care of that, nine times out of ten, you know, things go a different way. I'll just put it like that yeah. because, you know, there's no guarantee because, you know, everybody has different discretion. But, um, you know, most of the time you can get it taken care of once you come to court. All right. Last thing I'm going to touch on with you. We've talked a little bit during the break. The I don't know what to even call them. I mean, the, the pickups that sit real low in the back and it mm-hmm. picks the front ends up. I mean, it looks the craziest thing mm-hmm. you could imagine. The General Assembly passed a law mm-hmm. pertaining to those. Uh-huh. Um, how much longer? Do we know how much longer people have? I mean, I see fewer. Mm-hmm. I, I guess most have gotten the message. So mm-hmm. I see fewer of those. But is it, I mean, is it still, I mean, obviously it's illegal. But there was mm-hmm. a grace period that we were giving most drivers. Do, do you have any idea where we are in that grace period? If not, can you get us kind of an answer and we'll engage our listeners? I don't see as many of those, mm-hmm. but I still see uh, one we'll every see now it. and then. Of course. I'll make sure that I give you the right date as to when the citations will be issued, you know, when there's no longer the warning phase. But there was a grace period, right? Exactly. That we were giving exactly. warnings instead of mm-hmm. instead of citations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there will be a monetary fine sooner than later if you don't get that, that addressed. Exactly. Okay. Thank exactly. you very much. Mm-hmm. Lena right. Butler of the South Carolina Highway Patrol. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Back to the phone. Someone's there. Daphne and Dylan. Good morning, Daphne. Good morning. I know I don't have much time. I'll try to be quick. I learned early in my life that the way you gain knowledge and wisdom is by asking questions and using your own common sense. Uh, the questions I've always asked: Why was Barack Obama silent when Russia took Crimea and Georgia? Why did Hillary do the reset button and the uranium given, uh, our uranium rights given to uh, Russia? Why did Joe Biden, in fact, open up Nord Stream 2 when Trump had restricted that? Now, that's their love for Russia. Now they hate Russia, right? So why... Did Biden sign 94 executive orders the first 100 days to undo everything Trump had done, including opening our borders? Why did Biden stop the restrictions on Iran, making sure they got tens of billions of dollars, and giving them $6 billion for people, six people who claimed they were Iranian-Americans? Why did Biden uh, go back on the the, uh, Paris Accords? Why did he get back into the Paris Accords and try to stop our fossil fuel production? Why did he stop our Canadian pipeline while opening up uh, Russia's pipeline? Why is is the Biden administration funding the U.N. humanitarian fund to Gaza when six people on that particular organization say openly that Israel should not exist, why are Democrats and rhinos determined to give Ukraine $60 billion more dollars on top of the $75 billion already given to them? 
does Zelensky have something on somebody, and are they paying him off to keep it quiet? Why did Biden forbid Poland to give Ukraine planes? Why didn't we give them the appropriate weapons to start with? Why is Biden now pressuring Israel to stand down? Trump secured our border. He reduced uh, the he reduced the regulations. He increased the production of fossil fuels. He enacted the Abraham Peace Accords, and there were no wars, and none of our troops were attacked during his term. I don't know what it is that Rick is scared of, but I'm scared to death of the Biden administration. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. I mean, there, there's a there's a debate out there in some of the um, some of the uh, the dark corners of the web about when remember when Biden excuse me when remember when Obama used the drone and killed an American fighting with Al Qaeda. I mean, that, and, and that was not a big story. I mean, intentionally, it was. I mean, it's controversial, but it never made you know the headlines. It was below the fold. It would have been in, in some of the world global news. Um, can the president be charged after the fact with killing an American who's exercising his right to do what he chooses to do? I mean, I, I get, I get the, the 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 concept of an American fighting with Al Qaeda, but what if that American felt like, genuinely felt that Al Qaeda was better than his government? And uh, hold on to that. We got to take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I've tried to reason with our listeners and explain. Part of the job as Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina was presiding over the Senate. And we understood that things went at a much slower pace in the Senate. But I don't believe the Senate ever respected that the House members run every two years. And they're always boots on the ground communicating with voters about where they are, where they stand, what they believe. The South Carolina State Senate runs every four years, not every six years. But if you're a senator, you can take a vote every now and then that is not exactly where your base is because you've time, you know, you got six years to kind of make it. When you're in the House, you've got to be so in tune with exactly where your primary voters are, or guess what? You don't stay in the House long. I mean, that's just the reality of the Senate and the House, and I think that was intentional. I think our founders intended one to react and respond more actively to the voters uh, than the other. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. And, Ryan, that has created, I don't know if that's the only reason, but there's no doubt there's somewhat of a rift between the Senate Republicans and the House Speaker. In, in some, yes. Uh, you know, I, I think when you, when you talk about this foreign aid bill that just passed and also talk about the border security bill that did not pass, you know, there were a number of Senate Republicans who voted against both of those, and, and they had big issues with them. And they probably aligned more with Speaker Johnson than they did with Leader McConnell. You know, McConnell did not have that many Republicans voting with him on the foreign aid deal, about 20, 20 or so of them. So it, it's kind of hard to know, but it certainly does feel that Mike Johnson might be a little more in touch with a conservative base. You know, they like to call it the MAGA base at this point. Uh, and Leader McConnell is still not, you know, endorse former President Trump in the primary. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, he's voted for a lot of otherwise is opposed. 
Ryan, do we have any, I mean, is there any inside information about what Johnson intends to do? Will he ever let the full body vote? Because that's the power of the speaker. I mean, the speaker can hold that bill and not allow the, the vote. Do we have any, any evidence that leads you to believe one thing or another when it comes to Johnson and this Senate-approved bill? Yeah, no, uh, it, it doesn't look like Johnson's moving on this anytime soon. What I can tell you is that he has reached out over the last month on several different occasions to meet with President Biden. I had that information that he had put that, info, that, that he had put that request in through a source yesterday. He confirmed it yesterday at his press conference, and he says those requests have gone uh, have not been granted by the White House. And then the White House came out and said that they are not going to be meeting with Speaker Johnson and just pretty much encouraged him to bring that foreign aid bill to the floor. So there are some strategies Democrats are looking at. Uh, in terms of trying to get the bill to the floor. But it just looks like the one problem they're running into is that they have a number of progressive members who don't want to vote for this over its Israel funding. Any idea what the head count would be? I mean, do you have any idea what the vote would be if Johnson Ooh. brought it to the floor? That's that's the hard one, yeah. If I had to bet it probably would pass right now, you'd probably have anywhere between 15 to 20 Democrats voting no. I think it really depends on what the Republicans would want to do in a message you know if some more moderate people or those who would normally vote for a ukraine bill come out and say well no we need to get border security attached to it so we're not going to vote for this that might be a factor but i still think it probably would pass by a fairly decent margin if and if they put this on the floor interesting thank you ron appreciate the um appreciate the insight we'll talk later hey have a good one thank you you know and i think ryan's right and i and i'll tell you and this is where mcconnell knows what he's doing and some of the old hands in Washington know what they're doing. It's not a Ukrainian spending bill. It's foreign aid. It's Israel. I mean, I don't know how many Republicans or Democrats, if you take Israel out of the equation, the $15 billion earmarked for Israel, you probably gain, you ready, some of the Muslim Democrat votes. I mean, you probably do. I mean, there's, you know, there, there's an anti-Israel sentiment in the, um, in the Democrat base, and it's, and, it's, and it's predicated on some districts that have large population of Muslim voters. We know uh, the centuries-old relationship there and how complicated that is, talking about Palestine and, and Israel. And then you would lose some Republicans. There are some Republicans that aren't going to vote to send more money to Ukraine unless they're also sending more money to Israel. There's some Democrats who are not going to vote to spend money to Israel and Ukraine, but would vote to spend money um, to Ukraine. I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea how that vote would break would break down. I mean, I'd read what Ryan said, that Johnson had tried to meet with the president. I mean, I can't imagine the president not taking a meeting with the speaker. I mean, that, that's just bizarre to me. I mean, somebody is, well, I mean, in Biden's better days, being somewhat of a political animal, product of the House and Senate, and being a senator for as long as he was, but he wouldn't understand that his job in some ways is at the mercy of the legislative branch. You know, the the co-equalness of the two uh, branches of government, you can't get things done as a president big. I mean, the most, uh, well, that's unfair. Executive privilege is taking on a new and expanded definition, so the president can do a lot of things, by executive order, executive edict, courts have kind of sided with the president historically. But when it comes to appropriations, and that's what we're talking about, an appropriation comes out of the House. 
comes out of the Senate, comes out of the legislative branch. I mean, that that is one ability, no matter how imperialistic the president may get in modern America, he still doesn't have but so much ability to appropriate. And by that, I mean, they have some discretion within their line item budgets. He's got a an EPA budget. He's got an immigration budget. I mean, they have a lot of authority over that. But but in new monies and in some of the, you know, the traditional budgeting processes, I mean, the president's still at the mercy of the legislative branch. And if you're waiting on a $95 billion foreign aid bill and the speaker's holding it up, you got to meet with the speaker unless you're not competent, unless you're not able, unless you're not in a position of understanding exactly what the debate is about what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it. Um, I would love to see this. You want good government, Josh? I mean, you're always talking about dictatorships and good government. Hell yeah. I'll give you a mano a mano. Let's get the, let's get the networks to cover a meeting between Johnson and Biden. Nobody else. No, no, no handlers, no advisors, no consultants, Joe Biden in the Oval Office talking to Speaker Johnson about Ukrainian funding, border security. Let's have that. We want transparent government. We don't trust the Russians because they do things in the dark of night. We don't trust Putin because he's not to be trusted. But when they close that door to the Oval Office, do you really trust what's happening in there? I don't. I mean, I'm on the record. I have a great deal of skepticism about what happens when they close that door on the Oval Office. But if the cameras are rolling and there's only two in the room, and these are the two who have the yank to make these things happen. President on one, you've seen the um, the little meeting area in the Oval Office in front of the Resolute Desk. I mean, there's kind of a real nice coffee table, a couple of couches, sofas, I'm sorry, sofas. Um, Johnson's on one, Biden's on the other, cameras rolling. Have at it. How long? Doesn't matter how long you got. I mean, here's where I am. Here's what I believe. Here's what I think the country, here's what I think is best for the country. What, what do you think, Speaker? I mean, I'd love to see that. No teleprompter. I mean, you've got two people, two of the most important political leaders in the world today are not talking to one another. From what we've, hear, what we've heard, what, we hear, what we've heard, and I think Ryan just confirmed that, that Johnson has made the request. I'd like to come to the White House and speak to the president about where we are and what we're thinking. And the president declines a meeting. Why do you decline that meeting unless you're not up to the meeting? Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. You're on. Oh, good morning. I, I tell you, that that's a very valid question there, and, and I think we both know the answer to that. But I've been listening and uh, thinking about uh, between – Breeze's comments, and he pr- pretty much preached a sermon the other morning, and then uh, Daphne gave a testimony there. I think uh, you got to do an altar call for the uh, conservative-leaning uh, people in uh, your listening area. But uh, the thing that really uh, uh, concerns me is Tuesday night a warning light went off. And um, and I think it went off on in in the for the Republican Party that uh, that woman up there could not come close to winning that seat in Nassau County, 
And that's uh, that tells me that the national GOP is not with it yet. They hadn't figured it out that you need to get those people out and have them vote early. They've got to vote early and you, in, in case a snowstorm comes up or they have a medical episode or whatever. Vote as early as you possibly can and get in there and get the participation done. The other thing is, I don't think they get really funded her campaign like they should have. Now, on the flip side, supposedly she was still registered a Democrat, but she did say she voted for Trump. So she may be one of those true Trump followers that doesn't quite want to admit it. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. It was an unusual. I mean, there's so many things. That was the Santos seat. It right? was the Santos seat, Long Island, New York. Uh, it's it's it, it leans Democrat. There's no doubt about it. Santos won as kind of an outsider candidate, disgraced himself, embarrassed himself. I mean, I get the expulsion of, of dissent. The Democrats would have done it. I mean, they'd have kept that Democrat in that seat instead of putting it up for grabs. Um, sometimes I believe we get in our well. I mean, I know we do. We get in our own way in pursuit of a more diverse candidate. I don't think the lady was a good candidate. I mean, have you heard her speak? I mean, it, it's almost, no. you can't hardly understand it. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not being insulting here. She's not, she doesn't speak as you and I do. But I think we are so high trying to be diverse, just to be diverse, trying to find candidates that don't look like traditional Republican candidates, just to, are they good candidates or not? I don't know, but they're, we're creating diversity. But are they good candidates? Newsflash, you know who wins most elections? I mean, when you really boil it down, Rev's heard me say this a million times, the best candidate. I mean, I know there are ancillary forces, the weather, turnout, funding. I mean, all of that matters. I mean, there's no question about it. That's why I don't know, Mike, what to read into that. I mean, I thought a lot about it. I've not talked much about it because I don't have much to say. I, I don't know what to make of the weather. I don't know how bad the weather was. We do know that the, uh, the, the, the older the voter, the more likely they are to vote Republican. We got to change that, but that's where we are today. I mean, we got to address Josh and my kids. We got to engage those where they are. We got to meet those people where they are. And I think part of meeting Josh and his generation, which includes my kids where they are, is to stop believing that the, the Cold War still exists. Stop believing that. Let's formulate some foreign policy that is not predicated on what Mitch McConnell learned about, you know, the, the former Soviet Union when he was you know, only 65 years old, uh, you know, and I'm trying to be a bit facetious there. McConnell would have been 40-ish, you know, very impressionable. I get that. I understand it. You don't teach an old dog new tricks, especially that old dog, that newer trick. You just can't. Um, but but, but I think, once again, I'm not saying much because Rev asked me twice, you know, what, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, that's Rev's way of saying, hey, I haven't talked about that yet. I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I really, I don't know. I, I'm not in Long Island. I don't know how much snow was in the suburbs. I don't know what sort of early voting they had. I know the polls said it was a toss-up. It's historically leaned a little bit Democrat. Um, I got to believe, and, I, and I'm, I'm being speculative here, I got to believe that cold weather, snowy weather, bad weather hurt the older vote, which right now leans a little more Republican than it does I'm Democrat. Is there something quirky about that district? Well, I mean, it's something quirky about the election. It's not in a normal cycle. I mean, it's a special election, very limited turnout. Older voters seem to have stayed home. 
not a real good candidate. And I'm kind of more interested in about the, the bigger picture here. So you have the Republicans who had a, a, you know, a member of Congress that was kind of flaky. I mean, they, they expelled him. That doesn't happen very often. He was a, nut. He, he was was a nut. nut. he was a nut. Yeah. He was a full-blown nut. All right. But there's such a thin majority that they had, and they basically didn't – it didn't appear that they considered the politics of that, that we're going to minimize our – in our majority and put that all in jeopardy because we're going to expel this guy. And they had to think it's likely that a Democrat was going to take that seat. Well, I, mean, I mean, that doesn't seem just purely political strategy. Well, that doesn't seem and, smart. And if, and if someone had asked me. Because he would have been a reliable vote if, if, for, with the Republicans. If I were king of the Republican world, here's the way it would have played out for me. Santos is a nut. We got to get him out of here because he's hurting the brand of Republican Party. But do we have anybody that we think can win that seat? Yeah, we got this lady that speaks broken English. She's formally registered a Democrat. Well, let's put up with Santos' nuttiness until we have a better option. I mean, that that would have been the way I'd have run with it. The Democrats do that. I mean, the Democrats don't put up with. Well, I mean, they they you don't believe they do because you think everybody on that side's a nut. They think everybody on our side's a nut. I mean, they think, oh, those of us who dismiss climate change are crazy. We believe that those who think they have it all figured out are crazy. Well, well, well you, but, but here's if I, a couple of examples. Fetterman, all right. Uh, I got I, I to say this. Diane Feinstein. I, I got to say this about Fetterman. I never believed he'd get better. He has. Right. I mean, I was dead wrong. I've admitted I was wrong about the life I spent as a misguided neocon. I'm wrong about Fetterman. I thought Fetterman was so diminished and so affected by the stroke that he would never get better. And the man has gotten better. I mean, he's gotten, he yeah, freaks true. out Democrats now because he says things about the southern <laughs> I border. I know. But, but you see my point, right? But sure, I, mean, I they, do. Absolutely, they, I do. They, they stayed with it, and uh, they got him in the seat. And, and Dianne Feinstein, who was, was old and, and didn't know she was in the world, and they were still rolling her in there to vote. Here's what I'll say about the Santos seat. I mean, we've got a lot of opinions. He's a nut. What a nut. Democrats put up with more nuttiness. Than, than, here's the one established fact. You ready? In an election decided by turnout, the Democrats win. Snow, wind, rain, hail, flood, tsunami, Pennsylvania, California, South Carolina, in a toss-up election, when all things are considered and everything's about equal, and it comes down to turnout, 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 the Democrats win. Why? Because they're better at it. They're just flat out better at driving turnout than Republicans are. And if Republicans don't address that in meaningful fashion, no matter what the polls say in some of these swing states in November of this year, we're not going to win. You can't go into this election cycle trailing the Democrats as we historically have, in getting people to the poll. There's a difference in getting people registered to vote than getting those people to the poll. We've done a decent job at getting people registered to vote. We've not done anywhere near as good a job as the Democrats, you ready, of getting their ass to the poll. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Baron in Hartsville. Good morning, Baron. You're on. 
Hey, good morning, everybody. Ken, you know, what you were just talking about, you know, I've talked about this on a call before. And you, you go from the Santos thing to, to plenty of other things. Like, just looks like we're a terribly run party. And not with our ideals and not with our, you know, what we want to do or our policy, but with our actual structure, right? I couldn't name you to save my life who the Republican block captain is or street rep on my mom's street in Hartsville, South Carolina, right? Or my street, right? I couldn't name you, and I'm a decently politically, you know, motivated or interested guy who the Republican county chair is, in, except maybe because. I ran into him one time, but I wouldn't under any other circumstances. You know, our meat and the nuts and bolts of our party organization seem so disjointed or not organized. It's truly a question, though. I'm not right. Like, you know, a lot more about the South Carolina Republican Party than I do. Why is that? It's it's uh, it's so set in its ways, Baron. You know the answer. I mean, it's um, it's so traditional it's so legacy oriented it's so uninterested in change and i don't say that to insult anybody um i mean it has a a storied history i mean it's the party of reagan it's the party of lincoln it's the party of trump i mean it's you know it's taken on all these different iterations grand old party but i mean i've told rev this off the record i've got no interest at all in ever getting back in politics i mean i had my run i had my day but but Something like that interests me a lot. How do we rejuvenate, reorient, reestablish the Republican Party leadership? Vivek Ramaswamy is a very interesting person. I mean, if you want to really reorient in a radical fashion, because I think it's radical, Baron. I mean, I think I don't think you can throw it in the washer and say, "Okay, I'll take out twenty minutes, and I'm sure it'll be new and improved." No, I mean, it's, we've got to radically reorient voter outreach, voter registration, turnout, candidate searches how to get people motivated to stand in line to vote. I mean, there's so many things that I think we can do better, but but I don't think you do it better putting the same people in power who cut their teeth on the same old, outdated, antiquated sort of way. I use this analogy. Republican politics is a little bit searsy in an Amazon world. Does that make sense? That does. And, you know, yeah, I was thinking about it. The guy that calls in every now and then, or especially on election times, I think he runs the Republican Party up in Marlboro, right? He does a great job. Maybe it's Dylan. You'll have to correct me. Marlboro. In explaining this Marlboro. Like, these are my guys. I'm a candidate. This is where you can go vote. This is our, you know, it's, you know, putting people in charge of the larger party that are, you know, have better vision or, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy might be the answer to the Josh and or your kids and or probably about the same age as me. Right, my peers or my or younger, um, the that guy in Marlboro is kind of going a- aiming towards what I'm talking about. In that, you know, that is a well organized machine. It seems to be, or he's knowledgeable and approachable and talks to people. Right, I that you know, if you flash back to 1910, let's say, or 100 years, let's just do 100 years to make it easy. 1924, you know. It's a Democratic Party-only state in South Carolina, but there's stump meetings. There are organized committees. There's a county, you know, a county Democratic committee back then that met and decided on the county stance on policy. Right? It had, you know, there were, you know, all these organizations in between that had volunteers, and I don't know if they paid, you know, had paid employees. Do we not pay our local like? 
what's the county what's the secretary at the county office paid it's a labor of love i mean it's it's, it they do it because they care they genuinely care about republicans winning but it doesn't seem to be that legacy structure you talk about sears in an amazon world right where's my automated sears i mean where's my automated amazon warehouse that tells that automatically nominates that oh you voted in the you haven't voted yet and you voted in the primary here's a text message with a link to a ride to or where's my you know information operations team of young republicans who are you know here's something fake about my candidate now we're on all five social media platforms correcting the record yeah i mean i, I get it thank you baron appreciate it let, and so let's stay there for a second because i'm going to go down this road i'm going to get myself in trouble here as much as i support trump being the nominee josh i don't support laura trump being an official of the rnc that's too much home cooking. I mean, I, I'm sorry. I, I just, I don't like that. I mean, that, I, that bothers me. I don't know her. don't have any idea what she stands for, believes in. But it smells like he's trying to get her a job. And that's not your playhouse. I mean, that's not your sandbox. You are our nominee. You are a unique political disruptor. You are the best unique political disruptor there's ever been. And if you have an appetite for that, he's our guy. Fair enough? Some don't. I respect that. Some don't want that unique political disruptor they believe he's too risky too dangerous too big a too big take too big a chance going down that road but there's no way that i could ever be for laura trump being the second in command after i think he endorsed somebody from north carolina that he has a history with that that's just i mean that too much trump you know we debate how much too much how much not enough that's just too much trump to me i am as supportive of trump for president as i've ever been I am 100% opposed to Laura Trump having a job in the RNC hierarchy. But we do need to change. I mean, that, that we are a bit Searsy in an Amazon world. Um, we're not, here's such a shallow word, we're not as cool as we need to be. We're not as inviting as we need to be. We're not as marketing as we need to be. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Hey, Larry. So I'm going to split the blame 50-50 between the Republican voter and the Republican Party, at least here locally. I've always felt like there was some hesitancy in the Republican Party machinery to say, hey, we need you, little guy. They always like to say, no, 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 you need us, right? You need our candidates. You need our way of life. Uh, we're, we're the best, and so don't you want to be part of the best team? So they don't really go out for the vote. Uh, the other part of it is is that Republican voters are a little bit cynical, and if, if somebody showed up at my house, and especially if I were like a boomer, and said, hey, Mr. Johnson, um, we, we want you to fill out this application for a mail-in ballot because we're not sure on voting day that you're really going to go with that bad hip and everything. And that voter could go, wait a minute now, Sonny, you're not going to tell me how to vote over here trying to influence my vote. I'm not interested in this. Get off my doorstep. Whereas with the Democrats, they're, they're a little more uh, receptive to be told what to do. So Republican voters are a little bit, don't, don't tell me what to do. And Republican machinery is a little bit like, we can't admit we need these people. They're common folk. And so nothing happens. It's sort of like, uh, like I say, it's about a 50-50, I think, responsibility. But... Um, I'll tie this together. If you go back and look at that vote that the Senate just made, 
for that stupid funding uh, bill to, to, to put us in the middle of World War III. Look who voted for it, and look at their age. Part of the Republican Party's problem is it's not a fight along ideological lines as much as it is along generational lines. And if you look at everybody that voted for that, they're all like 70-plus. And if oh. you look for everybody who voted against it, they're like 60-minus. Nobody under the age of 55 voted for it. There you go. And I think that's more of the problem is who has time to work for free for the Republican Party? 55-plus. Where is or going to be rope one, 55-minus? Because these people, whether they like it or not, I mean, the the... the the, the uh, baby boomer generation is is starting to cross over, <laughs> and so we we've got to reach down to the younger group, but they don't have the time. So when some seventy five year old is running your party because he's retired, he's got time to work for free. We're going to get seventy five year old ideas. That's just how it is. So I, I'll put it fifty fifty. Fair enough. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. I mean, I coined the phrase. I think I did. Uh, I don't come up with much original things here because I don't think there's many original things yet to be thought of. Boomer neoconservatism. We're trying to make Josh buy into boomer neoconservatism because we bought into it and we're comfortable articulating it. We, it's been a defining political ideology of our life. Um, I'll give you a, a different example. Larry's talking about shared blame, shared responsibility. I don't disagree with that. I mean, I don't think it's all the Republican hierarchy's fault. I don't think it's all the Republican voters' fault. I mean, in, in a weird way, it's kind of a turf battle. You don't tell me what to do, but I kind of need to tell you what to do because I know more than you do. I mean, there's kind of a back and forth, a yin and a yang there. I remember as a Gamecock fan parking in the fairgrounds. I mean, I was a Gamecock fan, but I'm backed up to a metal building. There's a 55-gallon drum. Tickets are $8, so it ain't a big deal. You know what I mean? That that drum smells a little bit, but I mean, I you know, I can see the stadium. It's that far. I love my Gamecock, so here I go. All of a sudden, they call one day and say, hey, you know that $8 ticket? Yeah, it's $100 now. But we're not going to park you beside that stinky trash can in the back of that building. You seen Gamecock Park yet? No. Why? Well, here's a rendering. Whoa. Don't leave me out of that. We got to build a Gamecock Park. We, we, we still park people behind a metal building beside a stinky 55-gallon drum. They throw their beer cans and liquor bottles in. And, and we're asking them to do more. And if you ask people to do more, you got to give them something in return. And I don't know what that is. And that may be a weird example. But, but once again, $8 ticket didn't drive me crazy. But don't charge me $100 for a ticket to make me park beside that stinky trash can. Let's do something with the monthly meetings. Let's do something with the mail um, order. I mean, it's not mail orders, the mail list. Let's do something with the, um, with the updates we get. Let, let's be creative. Let's be... I mean, let, let's build a big, you know, million-square-foot distribution center that has robotics and automation and technology, and let's excite Josh. Let's convince Josh, hey, miss those two episodes of Seinfeld on TV Land Monday and join us. We're not parking behind that metal building beside that trash can. We, we got a new playing field, and we want you on it. Take a break. Back in a few. 3661 if I were good at my job, when Nick opens the door of health care, I would have stepped in with this um, consumer endorsement. We talk a lot about health care. We should. It's a controversial, complicated, expensive proposition for many of us. 
If you're under the age of 65, and I try to be clear about this, if you're under the age of 65, you're reasonably healthy. I'm not asking if you're paying too much for health insurance. If you don't work for the government or a big business, you are paying too much for health insurance. There are alternatives. There are options. One is Real Choice Healthcare. Call Christian Levis at 839-888-3970, 839-888-3970, or go to the website realchoicehealthcare.com. It's time now for the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today? Good morning, gentlemen. This is Big Al. We do want equity and equality for the taxpayer. Everybody should be self-reliant. What gives somebody the right to say, oh, I should get this and this or EBT or this? What, what makes them different? How come they can't work and do the same thing that we do? But I'm, yeah, I do want equality. I want the taxpayer to be equal with everybody else. Why should we have to foot the bill? In one hand, I've got logic and reason. In the other hand, I got government. And very often, government gets itself in a position or place where it denies logic and reason. Logically, any reasonable person would say, you don't deserve the fruits of my labor. But government says, yeah, but you know how society is. And we have a responsibility to everybody in all facets of life and all walks of life. That's why, fundamentally, less government is better government. Less government leads to more reasonableness, more practicality, more government denies those very basic principles. I'm so tired of listening to freaking Jeff and his ideology and his stupidity because he says nothing ever bad about Biden. All he talks about is Trump. It's freaking ridiculous. It's a freaking... I I enjoy this show until Jeff comes on. God! (laughs) I get it. I mean, I I understand it. But, But once again... These are open airways. We made a commitment 12 years ago now to never censor a call, to never disallow. I don't like personal attacks. We don't do that. Um, I hope we never do that. But, but you know, all opinions are welcome. Jeff has an opinion very different than the majority of our listeners. I like Jeff calling. You probably don't like that I like Jeff calling, but I like Jeff to call. The more Jeff calls the better my argument is. Now, he would agree with I mean, He would disagree with that. Right. He thinks that they're, they're fallacies to my debates. They're fallacies to my argument. It, it's the essential part of American politics. We have these open and fair-minded debates. Sometimes they get a little bit more intense than others. Sometimes Jeff gets a little insulting toward me. Sometimes I get a little insulting toward Jeff. I think Jeff and I could drink a beer. In the course of that beer, he'd be wrong every time, and I'd be right every <laughs> single time. First of all, I wrote Senator Lindsey Graham, and guess what? His website, first of all, comes up, send me money. And if you want to contact me, I'll give you my address so you can send me a letter 
instead of being able to do it on the internet. It's time for Lindsey Graham to go. I saw on Fox News one night this week, might have been Trey Gowdy, might not have been, I don't know who to attribute it to, but uh, they were talking about Prince, when doves cry. I got no idea what that means, when doves cry. I mean, you know, Prince is an artistic genius. I mean, he really was. He was an artistic genius. But I don't know what that means, when doves cry. Unless it means when Lindsey converts from a hawk to a dove. And I'm thinking about Trump. I'm thinking about the influence Trump has had on the Republican Party. Lindsey Graham now doesn't vote for Ukrainian-Israeli spending bill. There is one guy that the foreign policy experts could count on to carry their water (laughs) and to articulate in a very southern and respectful fashion. That was Lindsey's claim to fame. Lindsey's a good old boy from South Carolina. Now, whether he is or not, you decide. But he portrayed himself inside the Beltway as one of those good old boys from South Carolina. Let Lindsey sell this thing. He talks like them. He explains things in a way they'll understand it. I mean, they don't know anything about Raytheon stock. Or, or the quarterly dividends of, of Honeywell. But let Lindsay explain why this is important. And for the first time in my lifetime, Lindsay said no to a foreign aid bill because Lindsay knows where his constituents land. And I don't know that, I don't, I don't have any idea because Lindsay normally believes that when he takes one of these votes that are kind of out of alignment with his voting base, he's got enough time to make it up. You know what I mean? He'll play golf with Trump. He'll, he'll do something else. I mean, Lindsey's very competent, smart politician. You may disagree with him a lot, but he's won a lot of races that you didn't think he could win. And for the most part, on Supreme Court nominations in particular, he's done the lift. I mean, he's done the work to get some of these Trump nominees across the finish line. Some of it's optics, some of it's political theater, but, but at the end of the day, it was effective. And he got Barrett, and he got Kavanaugh. He got, you know, I mean, he's done some work for Republican presidents in that regard but when do doves cry don't know maybe it's after Lindsay converts from a hawk to a dove you've been listening to the wake up carolina whiner line brought to you by delta building systems you got something you want to whine about call anytime 803-720-5260 it's the official and the original wake up carolina whiner line speaking of prince you want to know why? I mean, Rev advised me to watch this, The Greatest Night of the History of Pop. I watched a little bit one night, watched the rest of it last night. The last part's better than the first part because the last part is pretty much dedicated to... Springsteen and Dylan. And the, and that's about the making of We Are the World, the night but, in but 1985. But we've always wondered. There's two things I've always wondered. What is Dan Aykroyd and Sheila E. there for? <laughs> Well, we know why Sheila E. was there. Explain why Sheila E. was there. And she knew it, too. It was because... It dawned on her yes, at some point in time. Yes, because she was there. And, and she was a musician, but she was Prince's musician. And they wanted Prince to perform as part of We Are the World. And Prince didn't come. He didn't come. The other... I want a Netflix documentary of why Dan Aykroyd's there. <laughs> now, that I can't figure out. Well, somebody said they sent out an invite to the Actors Guild. And they kind of um, nominated him, one of the Blues Brothers... I mean, Belushi's passed away. There was some music yeah, you know, was. involved in the Blues Brothers, so Dan Aykroyd came as, uh, was he Jake or Elwood? Mm. Josh, do you know? Was Aykroyd Jake or Elwood? I don't know. I don't know either. Um, and Blues Brothers, he's one or the other. Um, but the Blues Brothers are still, I mean, Belushi and Dad, he's at the Legends Theater in Myrtle <laughs> You can go see him about seven nights a week. Or in Las Vegas, right? Right. So, um, 
I would advise you to watch the greatest night of the history on of pop on. It, it is very, I mean, if you grew up in the Cold War, great. you know what I'm talking about. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.